you want from me. I gave everything I had to you, to them. Look what they've made of our dream. This bloated, rotting carcass of an empire is driven, not by reason and hope, but by fear, hate, and ignorance. Better that we had all burned in the fires of Horace's ambition and lived to see this. Good evening, and welcome to The Loaded Dice, the podcast that always rolls boxcars. I'm Doug. And I'm Andrew. Andrew, how are you this evening? Good, good. Not as good as the first time we tried recording this. Um. No, no, the quote, the quote at the start seems infinitely more apt now. Yeah, that's what we get for recording on Halloween, I guess. All sorts of really odd things yeah. going on. So yeah. in the system, yes. Uh, we also had some excellent banter about Baker's Delight, right. but yeah, sadly that is lost to time as well. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll put it up for the Patreons. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. And some um, some secret bread top chat, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what we want. Um, so, guys, yeah, we, we, this is the like like this is only the only the second run at the intro we've had, but it's taken us the best part of an hour to try and sort out some issues on my side uh, between Skype and laptops updating themselves and all sorts of strange things. So, um, in the interest of time, because it's now ten thirty at night on a Thursday night, and we both have work tomorrow. We're actually going to um, skip the Beyond the Rift segment, uh, so I'll do that next episode. Um, so it's another, go- it's another ghost story, uh, which would have been quite apt for tonight, but that's cool. We will uh, push on and start off with signals from the front. Doug, what's yeah. going through on your Voxcaster, mate? Uh, besides me belching, apologies. I realised I didn't quite mute quickly enough to cover that up. Um, uh Things for me, my steam tanks have all arrived now, which is great. Excellent. So my uh, my vampire steam tanks are all here, all eight of them, um, which is really good. Although now I'm thinking about ditching one of them and bringing in some vampire gyrocopters just for speed. <laughs> but I haven't decided yet. Um, the plan um, with but, those... But Doug, Doug, I have to ask you. Yes. Vampires can shapeshift into bats. Why would they need gyrocopters? Yeah, so this is the thing. It wasn't actually going to be dwarven gyrocopters. It was going to be crypt flayers with steam guns. Nice. Yeah, so like the the ghoul dudes with the big wings. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I was yeah, going yeah. to model them awesome. with <laughs> like both sets of arms, so like the the crypt horror hands and yep. the crypt flayer wings, and then oh, like cool. chuck yeah, a steam yeah. gun in there, and then give them like a bandolier of grenades for the bombs. Yeah, uh, I like that. They come on 50 mil bases, which is the same size base as the gyrocopter. Ooh. That's not uh, like and you I think... to not model for advantage, Doug. Well, yes, that's true. Kneeling knights is clearly the best way to do it. <laughs> um, my favorite was, did you ever see that prone wraith knight, by the way? Yes. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, Classic. yes. <laughs> um, so, yes, so part of me is wanting to do that. So I think I might buy, because I only need three, right? Because it's, uh, it's 100 and... 80 points for three gyrocopters and one steam tank's 200. So it'd be like Sounds about a little right, yeah. trio of, of um, crypt flayers with steam guns who sort of float up and and shoot. And I've still got some like lenses and stuff left over from the Luminarch and the Hurricaneum. So I was going to give them like uh, at least one of them, maybe the, the squad leader, like a, um, a telescopic lens that hangs over his eye. Oh, nice. And just make him like really steampunk. Yeah, yeah, that'd be crypt, awesome. Crypt horrors. Yeah. Have you decided like which um which free city you're from? It's probably or are you going to like be... bounce around a little bit. 
it'll at least start at Greywater because I think yep. that's the the extra range is just worth it. Particularly if I take the gyrocopters because then the steam guns get one shot for every model within eleven inches instead of everyone within eight. Yep. Uh, which is good. So I think that's at least the starting point. If I find that my steam tanks die too quickly or that I'm not mobile enough, I might swap over to Living City or Tempesai or something. But yeah, for now, yeah, I yeah. think it's it's grey water to start with, particularly because now I've got the Rune Lord and he's literally only there for the prayer of um, plus one to hit, which is a grey water specific thing. Right, so he's basically a space brand chapter. Nice. Okay. Yep. 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 So that's the plan. Um, but we shall see how that goes. So I'm I'm working away on the the Hurricaneum at the moment. Um, but yeah, busy planning even more purchases for an army that I swore I was only going to buy eight models for. Um, <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. Um, the other thing that I had on signals from the front was I've read uh, the new Warhammer horror novel, The House of Night and Chain, by David Annandale. Oh, nice. How was that? That was all right. That released on October 29th. So that's, what, two or three days ago. Um, so I read it quick, which is good. It was... So here's the thing, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the 41st millennium is so deeply horrifying anyway, particularly when you get into that sort of stuff with which an Inquisitor would usually deal. Yeah. Um, that it's hard to then write it as a specifically horror novel. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah so, I can see how that would be a, a problem, yeah. So it feels very much like... Um, what's it called? The, the Eisenhorn short story where the guy calculates the number of chaos. I was literally about to say, is it something like that? Yep, 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 it I know what you mean. It feels very, very similar, right? Or like the... Um, the um, Backcloth for a crown additional, right? The guy who has the, like a demonic tincture in his in his um, dark that's right, room. yeah, yeah, and and it sort of you know kills him in the end. Um, so it follows Lord Commander Strock, uh, who is crippled fighting Tyranids and gets sent home to sort out a corruption thing. Um, so like the the uh, agricultural outputs of his planet have been dropping steadily over the last twenty years or something, um, and so he gets sent home to sort that out now that he can't fight and he's a bit of a wreck of a man. Um, and so he goes to confront the corruption on his homeworld um, and finds more than he bargained for. Uh, are we doing spoilers? I feel like it's probably one of those. It's only three days old. I don't think I'll spoil it yet. No, um, no, no, no. Let's, <laughs> let's, let, let's hold off. How long did it take for us to spoil um, Eisenhorn? Uh, oh, ages? A few years? Decades? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's uh, give it at least, at, 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 at least a decade, I feel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, then again, it's probably it probably has been out for a decade because I did see the other day that we've got the twentieth anniversary of first and only, and yes. I was like, I got that on release, and then I was like, oh <laughs> fuck, I'm old. <laughs> mm-hmm. Such a good book though. First and only oh, is great. Oh fuck, and I'm so keen for the new Sabbath Worlds Crusade book. Just quietly. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a feeling we've been listening to the same stuff, haven't we? Yes. Probably, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no. So, House of Night and Chain, I enjoyed it. It was a good Warhammer read. Like I said, I don't know that it felt particularly horror per se, mm. but you know, it was a it was a book where there was some stuff happening, um, and it's because I bought like the the other two horror books. What is it, Maledictions and whatever the black one is? 
Um, I bought them on release as well, but I never quite finished them. So at the very least, the House of Night and Chain has sort of given me the impetus to go back to Maledictions and read that. Oh, um, okay. Again. So that's yeah. good. So I've just, I've just restarted that. Um, yeah, I, th- I think um, like, like horror uh, in a textual medium is, is very difficult to sort of wrap your head around as an author as well as a reader. Um, like I, I studied it quite a bit at university because we had an amazing professor um, mm. that had written a whole lot of stuff and it meant that we could like write research essays on Dracula and things like that. So it was really kind of cool. Um, but one thing that's, that, that's really different is that it's like there is an idea that um, like uh, you have like in text, you can do horror where the story is is a horror story for the people in it. Yeah. If you get what I mean? Like, like if, for them it is, but it may not be for the reader, depending on how it's set up, depending on, you know, how, how you're introduced and everything else. It becomes, like, you can really make, a like, an absolute hash of it. And as you said, when you're already dealing with, like, the 41st millennium, mm-hmm. it, it's like, like, how do you then go further how do you make it more you know uh, horrific and terrifying for the reader like what can you possibly do um and one of the really interesting things that that you know was sort of you know almost bashed into us at university about this is when you do film when you do a visual medium Mm -hmm. you have so many like crutches you can rely on like you can throw buckets of gore you can hook somebody up on like you, you, you know, like, like think of, um, like Saw, right? Like as a yep. franchise, it, it's, it's considered by most people to be trash horror in that it's barring the first Saw that was an incredible film, but the ones mm. after it just became like shock fests of gore. So like the original, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? Like, that was yep. just about how many limbs can we lop off people on screen and have, you know, people, like, you know, covered in blood and the rest of it. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, a really amazing um, horror film is actually the original Jaws film. Yes, 100%. Um, and it's and it's the idea that, that, like, horror is actually about, like, creeping dread and about building up dread and suspense um, and don't get me wrong, like, there's a de- decent amount of gore there as well. So it's like, it's not like, mm. you, you know, but, or, you know, you look at like Alfred Hitchcock movies, um, mm. like The Birds or, or Psycho or things like that. But when you transfer it into a written medium, it, it's just so difficult to kind of deal with. And there really isn't like, I haven't really read much, um, you know, in the last decade that's been tagged as horror fiction that I think has actually like achieved... The, the the sense of like so like horror is all about catharsis right so mm. it's it's terrible and it's scary and it's freaking you out while you're like watching it or reading it and then the idea is that the enjoyment comes from getting to the end of it and realizing that you can go back to your life and it actually makes your mundane run-of-the-mill life seem nicer and better because you are like that that's that's honestly that's the psychology behind horror yeah is that we like to be scared because it means when we come back to, like, the level, like, you know, not scared and not feeling amazing, 
or not feeling crap and not feeling amazing, just completely normal. Um, that feeling is like, that's why we like horror. That's why we want to be scared by things is because we can walk out of a movie theater and go, it was just a movie or it was just a book or, or something yeah. like that. Yep. Um, and that's how we kind of interact with it as human beings. So yeah, it's sort of like, I don't know how anybody that writes for black library at the moment, like none of them seem to have that. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like when you look at people like, you know, Mary Shelley and, and, and whatnot, uh, but even like a lot of that was because of when it was written. Yes, um, correct. But yeah, so like, was it a, was it a good book though? Like, forget the idea that it was a horror book. Was it a good book? Was it interesting? Was it like it was? You know, I think I would probably call it a a middle of the road Warhammer book. So okay. like, there was nothing in there that I was particularly shocked by. So there was no no twists that I didn't really sort of see coming or wasn't really prepared for. Um, which is a shame in a horror. <laughs> Book. Um, but I think what it did do quite well for me is I think it was, and I don't know why the other two, like the first two, didn't do this for me. But I think now that the the idea that the horror series, because when they first came out, right, they were pitched as this this new sort of thread of the Black Library, right, a particularly horror focused thread. Yes. And then the House of Night and Chain just came out, and it had somewhere on the on the cover in small text that it was a Warhammer horror film, uh, horror book. So I yep. wasn't primed to read it like a horror story, and I think I enjoyed it more without that expectation on it. Okay, fair enough. Um, fair which enough. is why I think it served as a good primer to get me back into Maledictions and the other one. Yeah. Um, which eventually we'll remember the name of, but whatever. Because um, <laughs> I, I think you're right in that, like, you know, David Undale, ADB, um, you know, all, all the Black Library authors are, are good authors, and they're writing good Warhammer stuff but I don't know that they're necessarily good horror writers. And I remember when Maledictions first came out, because it's a short story collection, they had a mix of Black Library sort of big shots and uh, horror writers' yep. stories. And the general consensus was that the horror stories were better horror stories. Like, the horror writers had better horror stories. Yep. But the Black Library guys had better in-universe sort of grounding in it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and so I think, yeah, so I wonder if they were just sort of... Because then they re-released um, the Vampire Genevieve as part of the horror story, uh, the horror series as well, right? Oh, okay, no, didn't, didn't um, so Drakenfels and, and yep. Genevieve Undead and all those ones, um, yeah, which are a great series, by the way. I recommend them definitely for a read. Um, but, but but not but, but not particularly like horror stories, apart from obviously no. they contain horror vampires. tropes like vampires, yeah. yeah, 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 and zombie sort of uh, people. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's sort of knowing that now that Genevieve is sort of where they're pitching it, mm. I feel like my expectations are in a better place than when I started and I was like, ah, it's going to be like solid horror or at least like schlocky horror that I can get into. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was just like Maledictions was neither of those things. And then the House of Night and Chain wasn't either. But now I know what I'm expecting. I think I've gotten back into it a bit more, which is good. Yeah, well, like, like I guess, um, you know, uh, modern, like, horror writing, one of the, you know, um, paragons of the genre is Anne Rice. Yeah, yep. Um, so Interview with a Vampire, yep. um, you know, all of those sort of things, Queen of the Damned and whatnot. But um, if you actually read them, and, and definitely, like, on, on the film, they don't come across as being horror at all. No. Um, but if you read them, they're not 
they're not what you think. Like I think, uh, I, I think, yeah, you're right. The expectations thing needs to change slightly. Um, yeah. Cool. That's cool. interesting, though. I have just pulled Genevieve off my bookshelf behind me, so I'm going to read that at some point. Awesome. Now that I've reminded myself that it was good. Um, <laughs> but that's me. Those are my signals from the front. Uh, how about you? What are you working on? What's what's caught your eye? Awesome. Um, so I'm actually working on some uh, some aeroplanes that you sold me recently. Well, actually, you sold them to me a very long time ago. I only picked them up recently. <laughs> uh, so... Picked up two Thunderbolts uh, from you and have uh, reclaimed them from your dirty, dirty Gene Steel cultists. Yeah. Uh, and they have been brought back, the, <laughs> brought back to the uh, the Imperial Navy. Um, and I was over at uh, Ben's place the other day, good friend of the show, Ben, um, and was utilizing his airbrush setup um, because mine's currently buried under... God, just all sorts of random crap in my garage and I haven't used it for a while. So I was like, it'd actually be easier just to go to Ben's and catch up with him for a little while and use mm-hmm. his airbrush for a bit. Um, so I'm kind of doing the thing that I think a lot of people do with um, aeroplanes in 40k, uh, at least Imperial Guard ones, is I've kind of gone for a uh, real world scheme. Mm. So uh, these two Thunderbolts, um, and I think I've got a Lightning sitting in a box, um, like a Primaris Strike Fighter Lightning somewhere. So I, I'm going to run them as an air wing, and they're nice. going to slip into one of my Armageddon armies, like the Steel Legion or the Pyre and Dragoons or whatever, just as you know, an air wing detachment. Yep. So um, I was kind of trying to work out, you know, how I wanted to paint them and everything else. I didn't want to just paint them the same as like the tank camo. Yeah. Um, or anything like that. So uh, I went back and I found a World War II RAAF scheme, mm-hmm. um, which was specifically a scheme that the Australians used in the Pacific Theatre uh, on their Spitfires. Um, oh, and it's like a... Uh, it, it's... I can't think of what the word is, but it's... Um, it's like a, a blob camo, and you've got... Um, like almost like just a, a very standard olive green, except it's got a bit more dark green in it. It's not quite olive. It's a, it's a bit darker than that. And then yeah, it's right. the other blobs that go with it are like a, almost like a duck egg blue. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a bit interesting. And then the bottom of the planes, after a while, they started doing the, um, uh, like the really light blue gray across the bottom. Yeah, right. Uh, so obviously, the, so obviously, the idea with planes is that you know when you look up from the ground to try and find them, you don't want to be able to be seen. So you want to blend in with the blue sky um, and the clouds. And then obviously, um, if you're flying low, um, you have the top of your plane camouflage, so it blends in with the ground or whatever is underneath you. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes you harder to sort of um, see and that sort of thing. So yeah, that's um that's what I'm going for at the moment, and I was just um I'm sort of like through the base coating stage. I've got to start putting the second camo color onto the plane. Um, but Ben Ben and I were sort of chatting about different uh, like in the past when I've done planes and and whatnot. Um, even going back to like the old Airfix kits, like when you're a kid, mm. you got like those like five buck kits and whatever. Was I was always taught to panel line, even yep. with a brush was you panel line and then you paint over the top of it and it gets sort of like a um, pre-highlight shade thing. Um, 
And yeah, I was yeah. sort of talking to Ben and I'm like, look, I don't feel like panel lining this. What do you suggest? Because he's a, a much better painter than I am. Um, and he sort of went, oh, you know, honestly, I would do this as a, you know, just set up where you want your light sources and then just do it um, a full um, pre-highlight across it. Yep. Um, yep. And then sort of, and then uh, oil wash it once you, you've sort of done all of that sort of thing. So doing this a little bit differently than the way I'd usually do planes, um, nice. but, but kind of feeling feeling good about it. So, yeah. Well, that's all right then. It's pretty cool. Um, and then other than that, the only thing I thought I'd sort of bring up at the moment from Signals for the Front was um, talking about Feast of Bones, which is the latest two-player starter set for Age of Sigma. I guess it's not a starter set. It's kind of like a battle set or whatever they call them these days. Yeah. Um, and it's the, the, the first uh, sighting of the uh, Ossiak Bone Reapers, uh, or the Bone Daddies, or, or whatever we're calling them this week. Uh, and they're fast. up against... Yeah. <laughs> um, and they're up against the uh, Ogre Moor Tribes, which mm-hmm. is the, uh, the Gut Busters and the... Um, oh, God, what are the other guys called? Beast Corps? Beast Corps Raiders, yeah. And the um, Fire Bellies. Yeah, yeah. All those, because remember, they split ogres into like seven different oh, subsets did, or whatever. Oh, they did, Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so basically uh, all the ogres, right? And then they're now yeah, back yeah. together in more tribes and, and the rest of it. So um, what I was just going to bring up with that was we were having a bit of a chat that, you know, like this is the, the next box that's come out from Games Workshop since the Blood of the Phoenix box, mm. which was the Elder Dark Elder. And it's interesting to see the difference in marketing and sales between the two boxes like similar price points but you know games workshop obviously was much happier to have more blood of the phoenix boxes out in independent stores whereas it seems to be and from having a chat with a few indie stores here in australia um, just about like what they wanted to order versus what got shipped and what they've been told they're going to get um and it seems like that most stores here that are in these stores, we're getting one, maybe two copies of Feast of Bones. Yeah. Um, versus basically, you know, as many as they wanted of Blood of the Phoenix, um, which is kind of interesting. So there's been a lot of, um, like, I think there's all sorts of posts about, you know, oh, it, it sold out in two days in Australia and it sold out in a day in America and it sold out in four days in the UK and, you know, whatever else for Feast of Bones. Mm. Um, and it's just kind of interesting that it's like, it doesn't particularly mean that they sold more box sets. It like they are to some extent strangling supply, especially to like FLGSs, right? Um, and and I have no idea. I don't have any contacts that are sort of like red shirts or anything, so I don't know how um, like Games Workshop stores went. But I know quite a few indies, and and one of them that has you know a lot of Games Workshop product. Um, so that'd be like you know one of the highest um sales tiers for games workshop when it comes to like yeah. independent stores um and he was saying that like he, he generally would you know do pre-sales and then go to them going uh, i've already sold 10 boxes or eight boxes or 100 boxes so i need that and then give me on top of that a few more to have on the shelf and they yep. were like no no what you're getting is going to be like i think he got four boxes and it was like no no that's just what you're getting yeah um so we hope you haven't taken any money um, sort of thing, which is, which is kind of interesting. Whereas previously, apparently, they've been really happy to kind of be like, oh, you've got like pre-sales, you've, you've pre-sold these, that's mad, no problems. Um, 
yeah we'll, we'll, we'll get them out to you there shouldn't be any problem sort of thing so yeah it's a bit bit interesting i'm not entirely look, look i'm not convinced that it's sort of like a shift in their sales policy i think it's more just that they have an idea of you know completely new race for age of sigma as well as a very popular race coming back yeah um so you know hype train and all of that let's make it more hype by strangling supply a little bit on it yep so yeah, and that then sort of, it's interesting, right, in that if you restrict sales, particularly of that starter box and the the savings that it has built into it, but people are still sort of, have already bought into the idea of doing more tribes or doing Ossiarch Bone Reapers, then you can push them to the individual box sets much easier, right? Because you can say, well, you missed out on Feast of Bones, but the Ossiarch... Yeah. Uh, start collecting is just about to come out or um catacross is just about to come out so why don't you go by that instead and the you know the bottom line is ultimately improved yeah 100 percent. and look I, I think games workshop for a lot of years has been trying to work out how to change our buying habits yes and mold them in a case that they can go well we know that when we do certain things it's going to be received in this way and we can know that we sell you know this many of it and the rest of it um mm-hmm. and obviously like that's just what businesses do yep that's this is not a games workshop black dark art or anything this is just how businesses make money you have to understand your customers and their buying habits and if you can then change their buying habits to better suit you as a business that's amazing yeah um so yeah, I, I think you're a hundred percent right. Is they've been, you know, they're, they're definitely back in the bandwagon of let's do big box sets with big price tags on them, mm. but give you a lot of value. Um, and then the other thing is, it's kind of like I'm um, just on the GW website now. It's like you know, Blood of the Phoenix is three hundred and ninety bucks Australian, right? You're pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, realistically, all you want out of that box in most cases is Jainzar, Drazar plastic banshees and plastic incubi right correct everything else has been around for quite a few years like it's like the falcon for christ's sakes is you know a 20 year old model just about yes and i don't think they've ever been out like out of (laughs) stock on the website right like no no no, no, always available (laughs) yeah Um, the um i was just listening to the the honest war game the other day right and um they were talking about the fact that games workshop desperately wants to move uh grunstock gun haulers um, yeah, yeah. Caradon Overlord said, <laughs> I'd imagine Falcons and Vipers are much the same, right? Like, they must just have warehouses of those sons of bitches floating around. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as well as, like, you know, Hellions. Like, who's buying Hellions? Like, they're nice models, but, like... Um, yeah. so, 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 like, as, as cynical as that is, I, I think the other part of it is it's, like, if we can get you to buy into a box set that's 390 bucks, right? Mm-hmm. Just because you want one or two character models. And don't get me wrong, like they say, look, split this with a friend, right? So you're still probably going in close to 200 bucks a pop. Yeah. When they then, when they then release Incubi on their own and they're a hundred bucks, people are not like, like it's, it's, it's a conditioning thing with pricing. Um, Yeah. And we do get used to it. Like hundred percent. We frigging get used to it. And we've seen it in so many different areas. Like, look at, you know, like even computer games and, like, next-gen consoles and things like that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I remember the days when it didn't cost $1,000 to buy a next-gen console on, like, release day. 
Yeah. <laughs> I remember when they were like $299 or $399 for like a PlayStation 2 on release day. <laughs> um, and then all of a sudden we're at $1,000 and that was getting you one controller. Yep. Um, and no games kind of thing. So, yeah, it's it's about conditioning and the rest of it. Um, yeah. But yeah, hey, look, in saying that... Yes, sorry, yeah, go on. Sorry, go on. I was oh, going to say, was... it's... Oh. Okay, off you go. You first. <laughs> oh, all I was going to say is it's not... At the end of the day, if you've got the money, you've got the money. If you don't, you don't. But I don't think any of us got into this hobby going, oh, it's going to be really cheap and we can do it on a shoestring, right? Like, no. no. Um. <laughs> yes, not at all. I was, like, so, so I was going to say this is, this is very much the lesson of Blood Knights, right? Games Workshop releases Blood Knights. It's five models for 150 bucks or whatever they started at. Um, yep. Everybody loses their shit. Everybody refuses to pay it. Basically, everybody converts Bretonians into Blood Knights because um, they they were much much cheaper. But as you were saying, right? You you release Blood of the Phoenix for 390 bucks or whatever it is. Um, get people used to the idea of paying that much for sort of the, the, the parts that they need. And then when you release the Incubi for 100 bucks, or when you release Drazar for 70 bucks, it's a, people look at it and go, well, at least I'm not paying 390 bucks for the whole box just to get these two kits. Yes. Um, and so yeah. you, you're priming your audience to, to make that higher purchase than they otherwise would do um, by sort of giving them an initial very high buy-in and then bringing it back to a point where it's still honestly much higher than i'd pay for any of them to be honest but you know still <laughs> yeah yeah a hundred percent that's 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 the way it kind of works but um you know one of the things that kind of goes hand in hand with you know what is undoubtedly created and marketed and sold as a luxury item right is it needs to have a high price point or yeah. else it falls down um and I, I was looking at a few other um you know miniature companies like not like third party bits people or anything like that but like full on um you know miniatures companies and one that always mm. springs to mind with this is um mantic right yep. so mantic if you don't know who they are is you know they're another miniatures company they have a very wide range of games they currently hold the ip for i want to say it's hellboy um i think it's hellboy but they do like a futuristic game and they have like a whole lot of other different bits and pieces um and one of the things that mantic was always known for was like they were a super cheap place to buy zombies yeah um for i want to say it was like was it seventh edition that plague zombies were really good sixth or seventh yeah, edition plague but also zombies fantasy were like a massive you always thing. needed you always needed zombies oh yeah, yeah 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 you could do like big big blocks of like zombies and shit um, which was yep. kind of cool but they were always really cheap now when they started off their quality wasn't great either but yeah. you kind of forgave them because of the price and the rest of it um and it's interesting when i talk to people about mantic and kind of go well you know you could go to mantic and you know the zombies great you know buy zombies from mantic or buy you know this stand-in for imperial guard from mantic and and the rest of it and people are like, oh yeah but it's kind of like cheap trash the reality yeah. is that mantic stuff has was probably never cheap trash, right? It was just yeah. when it was originally around, and I'm talking 10 plus years ago, um, there was a big difference in quality. 
between, say, Mantic and Games Workshop. Whereas these days, some of the stuff Mantic's putting out is, you know, it's pretty good stuff. Like, the design of it is really good. It goes together well. And it's still, like, quite a good price point. But people mm. discount it because it is cheaper. You know, like, there are people I've spoken to, and it's just like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to use that. And you kind of get down to it. And it's like, because they're so conditioned to pay Games Workshop prices for things... And to get that quality, that anything that's less than that is no, like, oh, no, I can't have that in my army with Games Workshop stuff because it'll just stick out like dog's balls. And it's like, no, no, their zombie miniatures are great. Yep. You know, they actually look better than the, like, you know, the million-year-old multi-part zombies that Games Workshop's been mm-hmm. flogging, right? Um, they are so <laughs> so it's just yeah it's just an interesting thing with like luxury items and it's the same the same goes like a really good example would be um there's a reason that ferrari isn't trying to sell their cars for you know fifty thousand dollars yeah yep because there are a lot of people out there that spend you know hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars on that product and if all of a sudden there's a fifty thousand dollar one they will not be interested in it Yes. Even though it does nothing to the things that they already own and it does nothing to the next car that comes out that's a million dollar car. Um, yeah. It's it, it's an interesting thing. But as I said, you know, it's it's like a buyer mentality thing that, you know, we're train trained in. Um, but yeah. Yes. Actually I think that's that, that, that that's that's almost the um, the most in depth pricing discussion we've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> Jesus, it's uh, dangerous. Just about, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, awesome well if that's everything for signals on the front what we might do is take a short break and then uh jump into the main segment let's do it we will be back in a moment And we're back, or at least we should be back. I think we're back. Are we, we back, are Doug? Back. Uh, nice. Yes. <laughs> also, so I, I know I just... that we've moved past the banter, but we're back. Great film. <laughs> uh, so um, we actually missed out on uh, um, this intro uh, talking about what the episode was going to be about. So what the episode is about is this is our State of the Union episode, uh, and it's something that uh, we've kind of done in the past, uh, sort of, you know, semi-consciously, uh, generally towards the end of the year and that sort of thing. But it, it's an interesting time uh, in 40K. Uh, I think it's a very interesting time for Games Workshop as well. So we thought we'd, we'd stop for a moment and take stock of everything. So it's a bit of a, mm-hmm. in some ways, it's like kind of a, a, a meta discussion about the game, uh, but not in terms of like, you know, the competitive meta or anything like that, but just like, you know, we're going to talk about Games Workshop as a company and what they've been doing with the, you know, 40K. Uh, we're going to talk about what, you know, 8th edition's been up to this point. We will talk a little bit about competitive 40K, and then we'll talk a little bit about the narrative side as well, and then, you know, discuss a bit towards the, uh, you know, towards the end uh, of what we think and where we think things are going to go from here. Um, so Doug, did you want to start us off just sort of like laying out the facts so that every, all of our listeners and, and, you know, you and I are all on the same page? Sure. Uh, Warhammer 40,000 is a game for two or more players, uh, who have assembled and purchased and painted their armies to play. You will need a playing surface, your armies, uh, a tape measure, at least one and enough dice for your army. 
plus the rulebook and any relevant codexes. So I've Sorry, got one question. Uh, yes. no, 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 no. I think that's a really good place to start. And the only question I've got is when it says tape measure, um, what would happen if I was using a floppy uh, dressmaking tape measure? Is that allowable? It is, as long as you're still measuring accurately. <laughs> you just have to, you and your opponent yeah. would have to develop a system. <laughs> yeah, uh, if, if, if anybody wants to really drive their opponents up the wall, go to a major tournament with a horde army and then use a dressmaker's oh, tape measure. God. Please don't. Um, or even actually, even, bad even better, don't use a dressmaker's... <laughs> Don't use a dressmaker's one. Go to Ikea on the way and get some of those paper fold-up ones that Ikea does. <sighs> and actually, I think in Australia, the, the other the other layer on top of that is those Ikea ones are now only in centimetres. So you also need a table, a conversion table for centimetres to uh, inches. So if somebody feels like doing that, taking a photo or even better, a video of their opponent's reaction to it and sending it to theloadeddicecast at gmail.com, um, I will... Totally buy you a beer. I mean, if you really want to annoy people, just use those shitty clear plastic ones they were putting in, in the the two-player boxes for a while there. <laughs> right? Like the one that was in Dark <laughs> Imperium. That when you put, put next to like an actual tape measure, like you were just losing something like an eighth of an inch That's every time it got a little bit... Yeah, awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, use them. <laughs> um, anyway... It's fine. Uh, so, it's been just about two years since 40k 8th edition came out. So it came out, what, June 2017 um, was when we got Dark Imperium and and yep. everything sort of began again. Um, over that time, they've branched out from the main sort of game of 40k into both Kill Team and Apocalypse. Uh, so yep. Kill Team being much smaller skirmish-based combat, Apocalypse being much bigger sort of formation style combat yeah um, and i actually sorry and i actually realized i left one off there um yeah. when i was going through so uh blackstone fortress as well yeah 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 blackstone fortress um and even the other ones right like aeronautica and um adeptus titanicus oh uh, of course well well no technically not adeptus titanicus because that's still set in the 30 in the 31st millennium not the 41st millennium that's true that's true um, but yes, yeah, certainly Aeronautica Imperialis, uh, which is little plastic planes being pushed around and you've got to make the appropriate noises as you play. Um, Necromunda as well. So there's all these different sort of ways to play now, which is great. And some of them are old, some of them are new, some of them are you know new coats of paint on an old idea. Um, but it's become much more diverse. Um, we're at a point where in the main sort of body of 40k... Uh, everybody has a codex, or every every army has a codex, I should say. Not everybody, sorry. Apologies, Inquisition players. Um, <laughs> every fully-fledged army has a codex, or is about to have a codex. Um, and then we're into the 2.0 codexes with, like, uh, Chaos Space Marines and Space Marines and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, we've had some expansion packs, uh, most notably Urban Conquest, uh, which had the campaign sort of booklet attached to it, as well as rules for city fighting or more in-depth rules for city fighting. Um, but then we've also had some some campaign books like Vigilus and like the new Psychic Awakening stuff, uh, which has added more units, more rules, um, more ways to play. Uh, and then we've had every year, what, at least one, well, sorry, every year we've had one chapter approved, 
um, and two big FAQs, and then every codex has had an FAQ within a couple of weeks of it coming out. Um, so that's just about the state of the actual on-the-board sort of side of things. Um, yep. In the background, Games Workshop's been interacting a lot more, so we've had a lot more sort of social media, event stuff, you know, streaming. Uh, Warhammer has a, has a Twitch channel now. Warhammer has a podcast now. Um, all of those sorts of things. Uh, and, you know, uh, I guess that that's a thing that's happening, if that's a thing you follow. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, th I think the other thing, and, and I noted it down here in the notes, is just being playtesters. Um, yeah. Obviously, there's, in with the interactions with Games Workshop, we know that there are third-party playtesters, um, and it has been for all of 8th. Um, still don't know if they ever used anything like that in 7th edition. Yes. Um, so, yeah, that's possibly something um, very new um, that they've been doing for the last couple of years, um, which is kind of cool. Um, and then, yeah, like Games Workshop as a company and how that how they've sort of changed with this version of 40K and the way that they sort of present it to the community, you know, even down to things like when you look at how are they boxing the game and selling it, you know, they've stepped away from yeah. here's a starter set and then you've got your own army stuff, and that's kind of the end of it. Um, as we're talking about in the intro, you're getting these two-player battle boxes that they're doing across all their games, uh, and they're doing quite a few of those, and they've got little campaign booklets in them and the rest of it, um, which is awesome, as well as, you know, they've moved away from this idea of, oh, we can't do bundle discounts, um, whereby we put a whole bunch of stuff into a box and then actually give a half-decent discount for it. Um, that seems to be kind of the name of the game for them at the moment, which is nice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's that's like a good, like, super fast overview of, of the game over the last two years. Like, what we've got, I don't think it's really missing anything um, from there. No, not really. No, I Just can't that, really. Oh, um, White Dwarf. White Dwarf has sort of had a little bit of a, a renaissance in, in recent, oh, particularly yes, recent good point. months. Um, in that they've been putting in a lot more sort of of the old style. Because remember, there was that time there, particularly in 7th, where White Dwarf was just a, an ad magazine, right? Like it was wall-to-wall, here's the cool new thing to buy. Um, yeah. Now it's got a lot more of the, here's a cool scenario for your Aeronautica Imperialis planes. Here's some expanded rules for Sisters of Silence and a, a thing to do. Here's a Dark Angels versus Fallen scenario for you to play with. So they've been putting a lot more of that hobby stuff back into, and like you know, here's how to, here's how we painted whatever, um, mm. you know, a lot more of those old school sort of elements that we loved about White Dwarf back when we loved White Dwarf um, have have sort of crept back in, which is good. Yeah, even down to doing you know like almost uh, mini dexes inside of White Dwarf, uh, yeah. like when they did. I'm thinking Crimson Fists um, and those sort of things. I think there was like, you know, Sisters of Battle stuff in White Dwarf at one point. Mm, maybe. Yeah. But Chapter was... Approved had that. But Sisters of Silence, definitely. Yeah. Assassins started in White Dwarf. Oh, yeah. Sorry. It was a legitimate Sis thing. Sorry, Sisters of Silence. That's what I was yep. thinking of. Yep. Yeah. So it, it's kind of, and I guess like this, this, this is actually a good little, um, little discussion point of, you know, like, do you think, like, the monthly magazine is a good place to be putting rules? Because I know this is this is quite hotly debated by a lot of people. 
as to you know like okay you so you you buy a codex and yeah like it's kind of cool that if you know it's going to be a little while before you get another codex and hopefully you know you get two to three years out of your codex um, yeah. Although, as we're just saying, you know, Space Marines, Chaos Space Marines are already on to 2.0 codexes, and it's been, you know, about two years. If you're playing um, Space Marines, you're always going to have a new codex or a new yeah, thing every year to, <laughs> like, every six months just about to buy. So, you know what you bought in for. <laughs> so, but do you think that having that stuff in White Dwarf and not really available anywhere else is healthy? Well, the only thing that really sort of shook things up, I think, like that that properly sort of introduced something genuinely sort of useful, particularly at the competitive level, was Assassins, right? Yeah. Like, it's not like Blood Ravens swept the meta when they got White Dwarf rules. Um, it's not like we're suddenly seeing Sisters of Silence everywhere. Um so at one level, I'm I'm reasonably happy for it to be that sort of narrative level rule sets. So things that aren't like uh, hardcore competitive bleeding edge sort of stuff. That if you if you're a person who loves Blood Ravens or you're a person who's real keen on Crimson Fists or you know you really want to run whatever, the White Dwarf is a good place to put those rules. Yeah, I I, I think. My counter to that would be they are, like when we talk about, you know, 40K and, and the idea of that there's three ways to play it mm. as 40K, you know, you've got open narrative and, and match play or competitive play. All the stuff that's in White Dwarf, right? And we've mm. just seen this in Age of Sigma with the, the Slaanesh Regiment Battle Tome stuff. It, it is there for competitive play, like it's there for match play. So although like it, it, you look at it and go, oh, yeah, this is really, if you, you love your Blood Ravens, you can narratively play them. But, you know, apart from Assassins, for a while there, Crimson Fists were actually a fairly good meta choice for Space Marines before they got their second, their 2.0 codex. Like there were a lot of people that were running Crimson Fists as an MSU detachment in Suplists for the Baltic yeah. shenanigans. Um like, obviously, not to the same extent that people were and still are running assassins all over the place and, and that sort of thing. But I think the other thing to me, um, and, like, my gripe is not that there's stuff in White Dwarf. Mm. My gripe is that White Dwarf disappears after the month. Like, that um, yeah. That addition of White Dwarf is gone after a month. Um and they're not available anywhere else. Like you can't, you can't even go and pay, you know, ninety nine cents for it or five dollars for those rules off their website and download them and just go, cool. I've now got them here with all my, you know, e codexes. So when you think about it, like if there's somebody there that does want to stay quite competitive, and I'm not even talking like you know the the really top guys, although I know that they would do it, but I mean. Somebody that just wants to be able to go to a tournament with as much game mastery as possible. Mm. Like, if you haven't bought that very specific White Dwarf a few months ago with Blood Ravens and somebody turns up and goes, oh, yeah, I've got Blood Ravens. And you sit there going like, well, shit, I have no idea what these guys do. And then it becomes a case of, oh, can I read your rules? And it's like, well, okay, here's the Codex and then here's the White Dwarf and then here's Chapter Approved and then there's, you know, this bit and that mm. bit. Um, and although, like, I... I don't know. I'm not 
that fussed about carrying several source books. I just feel like it's an accessibility issue. Yeah, I mean, so so here's the problem, right? Like, if, if I'm a if I'm playing with a high level of game mastery, the only thing I need to read if you're bringing something like Blood Ravens or if you're bringing something like Sisters of Silence or whatever, the only extra thing I need to read is that one page of rules that came in the White Dwarf, right? Because if I've got that high level of game mastery, I already know what Codex Base Marines does. I already know what the the FAQ did to that codex. I already know what chapter approved has done to that codex. The only bit I'm missing is the chapter tactics, the extra stratagem, and the extra relic, and potentially a character. Oh, uh, yeah, 100%. So, so I don't know that you necessarily have that mastery problem, although I do agree that the thing, the fact that things disappear after a while is a, is a slight problem, and I think uh, other podcasts have quite rightly sort of suggested, and I think I'm, I'm on this particular train, um, uh, like when you release chapter approved, either include all Add the it. white dwarf yep. bits and pieces inside chapter approved, or even sell it as a separate booklet if you really want to bleed us for it. <laughs> like if you, if chapter approved is already full, full full to the brim, then you know sell like a, a small pamphlet like the old indexes um, mm. that we can just buy once off and have all of those rules set ready to go. Um, yeah. Or move them to uh what are they calling it warhammer legends? legends or whatever it is yeah move them all into that one or the other except then everything would fall out of competitive play which is fine legends. it's like make it make it legends if you're desperate to play blood ravens play friendlies and then run them as iron hands <laughs> or salamanders um you know when you're playing properly or sorry not properly when you're playing competitive <laughs> um, yeah i like i like i'm for me, it's just the fact that it disappears. Because obviously, like, the price point on a White Dwarf in Australia is, like, what, 12 bucks or something. Like, it's yeah. not a huge amount of money. The problem is that it's hard to buy. And, like, I think somebody was saying that they've started doing digital White Dwarves again. Is that uh, right? I think so, yeah. That sounds right. Um, but so, so it's, it, it might be possible you can go back and, and buy the White Dwarf a bit later on. But, you know... Yeah, you kind of go, it should be available, as you said, like either in chapter approved or in its own thing or as a, you know, a paid download or a free download or something like that. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I, I would imagine given how small the last big FAQ was, chapter approved 2019 is going to have to be fairly anemic at this point unless oh, yeah. you start including some of that White Dwarf content. Yeah, right. no, 100%. And, I think it's going to be, yeah, all like tons of um, tons of missions or something. Yeah, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was the long play on it, right? That you, if you want it, like if you're desperate to be on the absolute cutting edge of things, buy a White Dwarf, get access to the rules. Otherwise, wait for chapter approved. It'll all be in there. Um, plus, you know, some extra scenarios or something. Yeah, yeah. And look, to be honest, that was what chapter approved was back in the day, right? It exactly. was the collection of all... The chapter approved rules articles from White Dwarf, and that's just what we're seeing at the moment. So yeah, look, maybe you're right. And if and if you are on that, then I'm I'm really happy with that. That kind of solves the problem for me. Yep. Um, but like I like I love that they're doing it. I love that they're going. Yes. We've got so many ideas that we're happy to do stuff in between codex releases and in between you know these big you know FAQs and chapter approved things. And obviously, White Dwarf is their best vehicle for doing that, as far as they're concerned. I think. Yep. Um, but it'd just be kind of cool to see them available somewhere else. But yeah, awesome. All good. 
Um, so yeah, the, the other thing I kind of wanted to just pick up a little bit on at the moment um, was campaign books. Because I think this is something that Games Workshop's had a few cracks at in the past. And obviously, mm-hmm. like, Forge World as a subsid and um, Specialist Games as a subsid um, has done campaign books for different systems to do with 40k as well. Um, obviously, the I'm sort of thinking back all the way to, like, 3rd edition. And we had campaign books that were campaign codexes. Uh, so, Codex Eye of Terror? Codex, well, Codex Armageddon, I think, was the first. Well, yeah. Yeah. And then Eye of Terror, and I think there were a couple of other ones floating around the place. But yeah, like they were the super thin, like, mm-hmm. okay, we know that Steel Legion are going to be like the guard regiment for Armageddon, so we're going to give them two pages of rules that, you know, y- you slip that in with your guard codex, and you, that then, sh- well, hey, I'm playing Steel Legion. And then it was like, uh, Black Templars are this big thing, so they work differently to normal Space Marines, so they get a couple of units, and you slip that in with Codex Space Marines, right? Um, And then you sort of get through to, I want to say, 5th edition, maybe 6th edition, and they start doing campaign books in Apocalypse. Yep. Uh, And you have things like the the Warzone books uh, for campaigns. And yep. they're very much pigeonholed over over in the Apocalypse thing, which was kind of like, at the time, their big narrative thing. It was yeah. not competitive. It was not in any way, shape, or form meant for balance. It was not for 2,000-point games. It was meant for, like, we want to go and play... Um, oh, what was it? Warzone? Was it Demos, Damos, or, or whatever it was? Um, uh, Damnos? Damnos, yeah. So it was kind of like, you know, let's go and do that campaign with our mates. But it was all about big apocalypse battles. And, it, you know, you had, like, crazy formations and, and the rest of the stuff yeah. in it. Um, but, you know, it was they were still pretty cool. Had a lot of fluff in them. Obviously, you know, much bigger tomes than the third edition campaign codexes. Uh, at the same time, all the way through from about end of fourth edition i think we started seeing the very first imperial armor books that were campaign imperial armor books from forge world so you had i want to say the first one was was the first one bad app uh was it not imperial armor volume one well, no, no. So that wasn't really a campaign book. That was just... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Here's yes. the Imperial yeah. Armor. Yeah. So it was kind of like, you know, you, you then ended up with these campaign Imperial Armor books. Um, uh, and I think... Was it... Was it Badab? I feel like Badab was kind of... I mean, I know it's still sort of numbered, but... Yeah, it I... It's own sort of subset anyway. Like, there was... I feel like there was one. Hang on. Uh, I've got them all here. Uh, the Taros campaign? No, no, Taros Ta- was, was a lot three. later. Yeah. Anfelion? No, because... So, Imperial Armor Volume 3, the Taros campaign, is 2005. Yep. And it's the first sort of campaign-focused one. Um, then you've got Volume 4, which is the Anfelion Project, which was 2006. Oh, Okay. Uh, and then you've got Imperial Armor Apocalypse, which just had all the, the Apocalypse data sheets and stuff. And then 5, 6, and 7 were Siege of Rax. 
and then it was Imperial Armor Volume 8, the raid on Caspel Novum. Uh, and then 9 and 10 were Badab War. Oh, really? Badab was that late in it? Yeah. 11 was oh. Doom of My Mirror. Yep. And then we're back to 2nd Edition 1, 2, oh, 3. The originals. Yeah. yeah. And then they redid Anfelian, Vrax, My Mirror. And then we got uh, Fall of Orpheus, I think, was the last yep. one that they did that was in that same sort of vein. Yeah. Um, and then there was 13, which was War Machines of the Lost and the Damned. But it's... Yeah, not, not so much a campaign one sense. or anything yeah. like that. Um, yeah. And then I, I guess to some extent you can probably class a lot of the 30k black books as being campaign-based ones from Forge World as well. Yes. Um, and obviously they're all awesome and stunning books like they're kind of like you know the the gold medal level for doing campaign books i think yep. um but then you know games workshop starts uh doing a few for seventh edition um and obviously they they close out seventh with three or four of them that are kind yeah, of linked kind of not gathering linked. storm yeah. Oh no, sorry. Um, three campaigns, right? Because you had uh, Magnus's thing. Yeah. Um, you had the Magnus the thing. Siege you had Fenris. the Biltan yep. thing, and then you yep. had the Cadian thing, right? Uh, the sort of closeout seventh, and I think that's where we kind of see the, at least from a lot of the, like you know our perspective as you know people who play the game, um, they really kind of fell off a cliff, and they were just <laughs> here's the most absolutely insane fucking you know pay to win formations and everything else in it um and actually for for a lot of people myself included uh even the lure of like the fluff and everything moving forwards on the law side of things didn't get me to the point where i wanted to spend money on that stuff because it was like 10 percent, and then the other 90 percent was kind of just like trash formations and seventh it was (laughs) you know such a pile of garbage at that point it wasn't worth it um so yeah, uh, obviously they've, they've bought these back, reimagined in eighth edition, and we saw mm. um, the first two being uh, the two Vigilus books, mm-hmm. um, and now we're into seeing uh, Psychic Awakening, and we've got Blood of the Phoenix as the first one, and then we've got another one on the way um, quite yes. soon as well. So I, I think it's you know really interesting because I've got the Vigilus books, and I feel like they're really amazing and i'm back to the point that i was at with like the forge world ones and even the old apocalypse ones where it was kind of like if the game system can get to a point where everybody's got a codex right Mm -hmm. and we're doing bits and pieces of basically narrative stuff in white dwarf to add extra flavor and then it's kind of like well okay how do we keep the game moving how do we stop it from stagnating without dropping a new edition or smashing out a new codex here you go here's campaign books and with each lot of campaign books you're going to get something new and slightly different whether it's a way to play so like with vigilus obviously that tied in a lot with urban conquest yeah Uh, and you kind of got this sense that a lot of the vigilus stuff was urban warfare uh you had that there and then they also snuck in um planet strike kind of stuff as well with Vigilus. Yep, 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 um, yep. So that was awesome. And, you know, we got some detachment stuff we hadn't seen in 8th yet. 
where yeah. it was kind of like, oh, we can make these guys like, you know, Indominus Crusade veterans for a command point, and that gives us access to this benefit or that benefit, which is kind of cool without it going overboard. Yeah. So, like, as much as you could make some cool stuff out of Vigilus, um, and I know, like, obviously for Gene Steel Occult, there is some there's some really, like, top-shelf meta stuff that's in Vigilus. But... Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like, I like I, I haven't... Even though, like, there's a lot of good Imperial Guard stuff in there and there's some good Chaos stuff in there and some decent Space Marine stuff, it didn't become immediately the go-to stuff um, for the competitive side. So it wasn't kind of like, you need to buy this book because if you buy this book, we're going to give you a thousand points of tanks for free in your army. Yeah. And Which that's, um, that's one of the benefits of having command points, right? That was one of the great steps forward, I think, from 7th to 8th, is being able to have that secondary resource that you've got to manage if you're going to do yeah. specialist shit. 100%, 100%. They gave themselves a way to be able to deal with it. Yep without using points that are already taken up for other stuff, you know, here's an extra resource. You have to manage this. You have to build it into your army if you want to use it. And it's really a player-driven thing, I think, in most cases. Yeah. Uh, So you can choose to go after CP. You can choose to not. However you want to play the game, you can kind of pick and choose, which is really nice. Options are good. Yes, we like options. Um. And now the um, the really cool thing, obviously, Psychic Awakening is happening, and we know that every single faction is going to get rules Something. in Psychic Awakening, yeah. right? Because obviously Vigilist didn't include everybody. It was a very oh. Chaos Imperium kind of thing. There was a bit of Orc think, stuff in there and a bit of, you know, this, that, and the other. But, you know, the big included everyone out. that matters. <laughs> Imperium, Gene Stealers, and others. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um and and like I see the thing with Psychic Awakening at the moment from seeing Blood of the Phoenix is it's all about customization at an even more granular level. So it's like so far we've seen basically doctrine systems. Yeah. Um which which makes me like super, super excited for things. Um because obviously you don't have to be playing psychic awakening stuff to use it in the same way you didn't have to be playing vigilist campaign games to use use the vigilist attachments uh and the relics and the rest of it so yeah i i've really loved looking through and seeing you know what the eldari get for it and what the drukari get for it and how it's broken up and it's not just like oh here's this little thing and there's a couple of things it's like no we've got you know six or seven different choices for cabal six or seven choices for witch cult six or seven choices for um for covens right and it's like you can really mix and match stuff up so I'm really looking forward to, you know, maybe seeing something for Imperial Guard, maybe seeing what happens. Uh, it seems to suggest that the next section is going to be very much uh, Imperium and Chaos. So, like, what are they going to do with, like, Sisters of Battle? Are we going to see some sort of doctrine system or split between the different um, militant orders of the Sisters of Battle, which would be really awesome? And then even, you know, like, on the Chaos side, are we going to see maybe some slightly different things for renegades and heretics? Yep. You know, like, um, so I think that's, that's really cool. And I like that they're using the campaign books to push that a bit. Yeah. 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 Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's only been good, right? Mm. Yeah. I, I don't have any issues with paying, you know, 70 bucks here and there for a campaign book when it's giving me that much stuff 
Uh, and obviously the other big thing with the campaign books, which they've never done before, except for the very end of seventh edition, is they're not historical. Yes. Right. So even like um, even the Eye of Terror book and the Armageddon Codex from way back in the day. As much as they talk about them being worldwide campaigns and you can influence the way this campaign is going to go. Nobody ever, and this is even like GW employees that were in, you know, working for GW at the time, and they were just like, Eye of Terror was never going to end any other way. All yes. the big stuff in Eye of Terror was planned out years in advance. They knew what they were doing. They knew what was going to happen at those big milestones. It was really the in-between stuff and like the flavoring of it. Yeah. Um, and Armageddon, hundred percent. Like there was, there was like you know even even less impact um, with Armageddon. Yep. There was like it was it was always going to be that way. There was no way that Yarrick was going to die. There was no way that you know um, Gazgal was going to die or anything like that. Um, yeah, for sure. They had it very much locked down in terms of what could and couldn't happen, and then people just kind of like added into that. Um, and look, don't don't get don't get me wrong. Like you know, we've been uh, TOs, EOs, game masters for a million years, um, and sometimes you have to do that with stuff with your events. Yep. Um, like I don't. I like like in in recent memory, I haven't. Just thinking. Like I don't think I've I've done it for Warhammer, but like definitely things like Dungeons and Dragons and whatnot, where you have to really like work out your storyline in advance. Yeah, exactly. And have like you, you can have a few options. But, like, at the end of the day, if you're putting the effort in to run a campaign, you don't want your uh, your adventurers to just disappear off down a road that you have no idea what's going on down there and has nothing to do yes. with your campaign. And Games Workshop is very much the same. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. So, and I don't think... I don't, like, I think the more you're used to that sort of uh, RPG style of uh, campaign involvement, the less of a problem you have with that, right? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, people yeah, who I have mean, only played 40k get up in arms about not being able to, you know, influence the outcome of the Eye of Terror campaign. But anyone who's played D&D knows that that was always going to end one way. Oh, 100%. You, you don't let your IP be dictated by somebody, like, spamming results on a website. Correct. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, no, like, I, I think the campaign books have been one of, like, the shining stars of 8th edition for me, at least. And I'm really excited to see where they go. Um, you know, and obviously the way that the Games Workshop, you know, just really quickly, I've been approaching, like, the FAQs and the chapter approved, yeah. I think, is a, a step in the right direction. Um, once again, I think there's a little bit of a problem with the accessibility side. Um, but yeah. for the most part, it's pretty good. I'm I'm unconvinced about accessibility issues for the FAQs. Oh, sorry. I, w I was probably more thinking chapter approved, and in regards to like, um, you you know that your book's only valid for a year, so it's kind of like, but there is stuff in there that is separate to the FAQ stuff. Um, mm, it's kind yep. of, yeah, yeah. It's it's fine. It's like it's picking. It's nitpicking. 100%. <laughs> Honestly, like, and this is one of those things which, again, I'm sorry to get on my hobby horse about this, but this is another one of those times where you just have to be okay throwing stuff out. Buy a chapter of fruit for a year, <laughs> bin it when you buy the new one. 
like I don't have chapter approved 2017 anymore. All I have is is 18 or 19 or whatever we're up to. Yeah. Um, like because 2017, everything's either been superseded or, you know, because particularly all of the because there was stuff in there for for armies that didn't have codexes yet, so that's yeah. irrelevant. The missions have been updated again for 2018 anyway to make them more balanced. Um, you know, the, the content is still there, and and anything that was worth keeping from 2017 is in 2018. Um, but you know, like it's, it's just 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 been it. It's fine. Like the the indexes, right? <laughs> Unless you are desperate to run a particular thing that's in your index but not your codex, get rid of your indexes. You don't need them anymore. Yeah, hundred hundred percent. Couldn't agree more with the index side of things. Yeah, yeah. Shred um, it, shred them up and use them to, you know, give them to your hamster or something. Exactly. And and even if there is something in there, right? If you've got to have that war boss on the bike, he's not going to be around much longer, because Warhammer Legends is going to move him into a Legends unit, which yeah. is fair enough, because it's been however long since Games Workshop has had a war boss on a bike model that you can use. Um, if they've ever had one, I don't think they have actually, except for the Forge World one. I was gonna say Forge World um, had one, yeah. Uh, yeah, so you know, but that like those things will move to Legends, and then you'll just have to pulp your indexes anyway. <laughs> so I think we're, we're both kind of on the same page. We're pretty happy with everything that has sort of been happening on that side of 40k for the past couple of years for Eighth Edition. Yeah, I think so, and yeah, you know, yeah, and and also. Uh, the thing that really stands out to me and I'm constantly, well, not so much now that I don't really use social media, but, um, you know, had it, you'd always say this, Oh, you know, ninth edition is going to come out tomorrow. Like we're all wasting our time. It's going to be ninth. They're going to just try and, you know, and, you know, games workshop has been sitting there for two years, basically going, um, we, we reshuffled the deck on eighth edition and made it a completely new game from seventh edition. And seventh edition was an evolution that had started in fifth edition but actually it had started if, if you really look into what it is seventh edition actually started in fourth edition when they did the chapter approved assault rules um and they asked for feedback on them in a white yes, dwarf right. that yep. was actually the start of seventh edition yep. that's the evolution for it when you when you plot it and i will literally fight people in the street with rusty fucking spoons if they disagree with me um because i i went through all of that I remember the day that we sat down and read that white dwarf and went, this is so weird. What are they doing? Why are we try? Why are we using the trial assault rules? Yeah. And then that walked that stuff in and like the basic principles, all of that, all the way through. So, you know, I think the idea of like, Oh, ninth edition is going to be tomorrow is really a case of, you know, games workshop doesn't really talk about things as far as like eighth edition. No. They kind of like that's something that we put on top of it to make sense of things and to codify things. Whereas, you know, Games Workshop's probably like, well, we've been through two chapter approves already, so we're already at tenth edition realistically, and we've had this many big FAQs, so actually we're at fifteenth edition by now. You know, or like eight point whatever. Um, and if we do get some big ninth edition change, it's not going to be a big change at all. It's going to be a new starter box set or something with some new, really cool new miniatures in it. And it's just going to be eighth edition with all the FAQs and all the chapter approved stuff laid on it. And I think yeah. seeing the last big FAQ as small as it was, makes me think that games workshop is really to the point where they're like, we've never got this shit locked down. 
once that's locked down, we can just do campaign books and expansions. Yep, yep, yep. And I mean, like people often point to Age of Sigma Second Edition as a as a um, as a model for how 40k is going to go. But one of the things to remember is that Age of Sigma First Edition had a real image issue. Mm. Right, given that it started with no points, it was fighting the destruction of the world that was. Yeah, um, you know, it was fighting the the internet sort of sensationalists burning their high elves. Um, <laughs> And so it yeah. almost needed that three years to just get people used to the idea that Warhammer Fantasy is dead. Now it's the Age of Sigma, and then relaunch and go look at all these cool models we're running in, and like running in Age of Sigma now. Yeah, and and I think you know, age like to put it in other terms, Age of Sigma was a startup. Yeah, forty k is you know the the blue chip company that's been around forever. That just needs to realign itself to a more modern way of doing business. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I don't think you're going to get that monumental seismic shift now that we've had it going from 7th to 8th. No. Um, the the yeah. only thing I want is, like you said, that reprint where all of the extra rules are now just contained in the one rule book, right? So not, not necessarily yep. Vigilus, Psychic Awakening, that sort of stuff. By all means, sell me that separately. I don't really care. But the big FAQ stuff... The, the stuff that's sort of been baked in from chapter approved. Give me a give me a like a, a reprinting of the 40k rulebook that has that in it, and I'll be happy. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree um, more. Like so, so you may have noticed uh, what a couple of weeks ago they released a, an Age of Sigma sort of gamers gamers companion rulebook and a 40k gamers companion rulebook. Yeah, yes. So like the, yep, the yep. short, the small sort of A5-ish style sort of booklets. Um, the Age of Sigma one had Age of Sigma updated with all the FAQ information and all of the realm rules from Malign Sorcery and something else. So it had like three books sort of combined into the that little rule book. The 40K one was just a reprint of the rules section of the original 40K rule book with none of the FAQ stuff baked in. Oh, right. Okay. And certainly none of the Vigilus stuff and none of the terrain stuff from Chapter Approved. Yep. Um, which felt like a real misstep. Yeah, and, and it kind of goes to show how, like, separate it must be inside a Games Workshop that yep. you get two things that should be exactly the same um, yep. for two different game systems, and then they're, like, massively different when you get down to it. So Yes, and I think the 40K yeah. one went off the web store quietly, like half a week after it went up. Oh, okay. I could didn't be wrong. That. But Hang on, uh, I was just looking was... at the page with all the rules on it, but I didn't even try looking for that one. Uh, let me have a quick look here. Uh, no, yeah, it still seems so... to be there. Oh, is it? That's a shame. Um... Oh, hang on, hang on. Is the rule book a five? Let me just have a quick. No, that's the that's the. Full... Oh, that that's the full size one. Yeah, it is. It is the yeah. full size one. So no, you're right. The um the small version is gone. Yep. You either have the full size the full size tome at ninety eight dollars, or you have just the rules section at eighty four dollars. Yeah, that codex looking one. Yeah, it's got a big um, um big Primaris dude on the front instead of the hammer. Yeah, whereas the if you look over on the Age of Sigmar side, there's a Age of Sigmar gaming book for fifty five bucks. Yeah. 
and uh, which 100%, combines 100%. four yeah, rules, General's Handbook 19, and Malign Sorcery, and extra stuff. So, yeah, just a, it was a it was a wiser sell, I think, than the, the 40k <laughs> one. Yeah, that 100% agree. They need to do something like that, and you have to imagine like they're doing it for Age of Sigma. We we should see it fairly soon for 40k. One would hope. The the only reason you wouldn't would be if you were planning to sort of relaunch an eight and a half sort of mm. thing with some fanfare. Yeah. Although I think they're going to be quite tied up with um, Psychic Awakening for a while. It'd Correct. be odd to see them do any sort of shift while that is. But as I just said, you know, I can't imagine that, you know, what we end up talking about as being ninth edition is really going to be that much of a shift from eighth edition. Yep. Um, it seems like they've just put so much work into trying to get everything on the same level, like, you know, all the codexes, all the, you know, everything else. Yeah. But then go, hey, guys, we're just wiping it all out and starting again. Just doesn't make sense to me. No, correct. Cool. All right. Um, well, what we, what we might move into then is the competitive side of 40K. Um, mm. uh, and, and I guess, like, like, it's not like... Yes, we'll talk about some of, like, the uber-competitive stuff, the ITC and the rest of it, but also, like, I guess this is, like, the rule side a little bit to some extent. Yeah. Yep. Um, so so one thing, I was doing a bit of research for this episode, um, and I was sort of, like, killing myself trying to find some numbers and things like that. <laughs> and so what I ended up doing was just going to um, BCP, right? So Best Coast Pairings, which is the ITC um rankings and pairings app yep uh it's 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 look it's an awesome app if you're a a to that wants to run any sort of tabletop tournament game uh just talk to bcp about getting it sorted out it everybody knows how to use it it's great costs a couple of bucks no issues Mm -hmm. i think if you're a player it's free um but for TOs to to get into it's like five bucks us or something i think so super easy um and then what i did was i went Warhammer 40k and then events in the last year. So in the last 12 months, right? Keep in mind, this is only events that have been put on BCP. Mm. So it is almost every ITC event in the last year, but also a bunch of other stuff, right? Uh, And I haven't filtered or done anything in terms of like numbers of rounds and the rest of it. So you've got, you know, Um, you know, your road trader tournaments, you've got your bigger two, three, four day, like, you know, GT stuff like LVO and Adepticon and the rest of it. Um, but BCP for the last 12 months is showing 2,965 individual tournaments for Warhammer 40k. I would believe that. Right. Um, and in the last month, it is showing 309. Yeah. In right. the last month, it is showing 309 yeah. individual tournaments, um, which is fucking massive. It's a lot it, of Warhammer. It is, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's it's saying that on, on any given weekend anywhere in the world, you're basically looking at, what, like 70 events each weekend, mm-hmm. ranging from um like there's this uh one here on the 2nd of october that was fat ogre fat ogre's weekly wednesday warhammer right which is from fat ogre games and comics in woodlands texas in the u.s and it's a two-round obviously wednesday night tournament right 
but it's ITC. It gives you ITC points. It is logged here, and it is people playing competitive Warhammer um, and embracing yeah. it like crazy. Um, and if you mm. contrast this to to Seventh Edition, where they couldn't fill G like hundred person GTs at big conventions in America and in the UK, mm. like they had problems getting numbers in. Um, this is obviously showing that it, you know it's so healthy at the moment as a hobby um yes correct you know and and you know specifically that quite um you know competitive side of things yep sorry i I just stumbled a little bit there because windows just told me it wanted to restart and do the next one of updates when they'd already spent an hour doing Uh updates this computer recently but it did let me um palm it off for another 24 hours so Ah, all good crisis averted wonderful yeah so i I think one of the it's it's interesting, right, in that when you're thinking about it, and this is sort of moving into your second point here, um, it's not like it's because there's sort of one or two lists that are doing well and everybody's just buying that and playing that. Because I feel like mm. you, you could you could look at those numbers and say, well, that's just because everybody's found the secret source and they're all just playing that, um, which was very much how 7th Ed ended up going, which is why nobody ended up playing 7th edition tournaments. Yeah, you're playing um, what like Mechanicum or Space Marines, right? That was kind yeah, of the much. end of seventh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or Eldar was still all right. Um, uh, whereas in competitive 40k now, it always feels like there's something else to be working on. Um, so like like it like you sort of got written here, right? We started with Gulliman and six Storm Ravens. Um, <laughs> yes, this is kind of like... or whatever we could pack in. Yeah, sorry, go. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, this is kind of like, you know, the, how the meta's kind of shifted. And yeah. I think it's so it's so healthy because there's three lines of things, and I know I've missed some stuff out in here. Yep. Um, but, yeah, you're right. that This is not a stagnant system. Yeah, and so if you didn't want to if you didn't want to do Storm Ravens, then you just hung around for a bit, and then Imperial Soup was the way to play. Um, and then... You know, Imperial Soup refined itself down to Castellans and Slam Captains and Guardsmen. Um, and then that was fine until... Whoops, sorry, not my mic. Uh, and that was fine until Castellans got bumped up by 100 points. And then we went on to the next thing and on to the next thing. Um, until eventually you've got Chaos Knights with three Lords Discordant. Uh, and now you've got nothing but Iron Hands. <laughs> and shortly nothing but Salamanders. Yeah, I, I I just want to read an extract from something I found while I was doing some research that mm, go for it. proves your point so well. One key to the continued health of magic, and this is Magic the yeah. Gathering, yep. is diversity. It is vitally important to ensure there are multiple competitive decks for the tournament player to choose from. Why? If there were only a single viable deck to play, tournaments would quickly stagnate as players were forced to either play that deck or a deck built specifically to beat it. In addition, different players enjoy playing different types of decks. If there are plenty of viable options to play, there will be players. There'll be more players at more tournaments. Correct. Okay, so that's the opening line from Wizards of the Coast, uh, talking about their banned and restricted lists for Magic: The Gathering. Yep. Um, and I think you know, like as much as Games Workshop doesn't have that written anywhere on their website, you, you just replace Magic with Warhammer 40k and and decks with armies, right? And it's exactly the same. It doesn't matter that it's not specifically a magic thing. It's just a evolution it's, it's a thing. Gaming thing, right? Like we, 
everybody has a thing they would like to see do well. And, you know, certainly if you're running Imperial Guard, you've never really been absolute top dog if you're running Pure Guard. But everyone feels like they're in with a fighting chance to at least break even at a tournament. You're not going to fight three of exactly the same army that you're then going to lose to every game without rolling any dice. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, th- I think there's still... Um... Yeah, for the most part, I 100% agree with you. Um, there's there's a few, I think, outliers in it. Um, like, obviously, if you play Grey Knights, well, you probably don't play them at the moment. Yeah, uh, they had their moment. <laughs> and they got greedy. Uh, they got greedy. For they for got too years. good. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, but yeah, like, like there is definitely this idea that the variation uh even within art like even within codexes at the moment is pretty amazing and it allows for so many different builds like as much as i've got here you know like elder flyers as being a meta shift um and so it's hung around for a long time it's not the only way to play elder that is a six that is successful in a competitive environment uh what else have i got here uh like iron hands really recently well, probably a really good example of where Games Workshop had probably made the biggest misstep in 8th edition as far as rules went. Um, in terms of the Iron Hands list that went to like 81% win rate in two weekends um, of ICT after it dropped. ITC, sorry. Um but it didn't matter who was playing them. Like, there was very little variation for pilot. Yeah. That's kind of, like, where you go, mm, hang on, there's a massive mistake here because, you know, even, like, that Elder Fire list, it's still doing quite well. Or if you want to look at something like the um, the Tau list that won Nova. Yep. That That's all about, like, shunting stuff around with, like, gun drones and whatnot there is, uh, you need some amount of skill to go with it. Whereas these Iron Hands lists that were going, you know, there was one guy that had never been to a tournament in his life and he'd rocked up to a, I think it was like a 200 person GT somewhere in America. I think it might've been like in Chicago or something. And he'd never played Iron Hands before. He didn't do a single practice game and he went, and he went 4-1 and the only guy he lost to was an Iron Hands player that had actually practiced. Yeah. Yeah, and there's, like, photos doing the rounds where it's kind of, like, both sides of the table was, like, three executioners yep. with uh, Ferris in the middle with the Ironstone. Is that the one where and they're it, both on Sky Shields as well? Uh, yeah, it's similar to that. It's similar to that one, right? It was yep. just, like, you know, the mirror match was just exactly the same. So it was, you know, yep. people going, holy crap, this is amazing. I'll go and dump $1,000 on bloody uh, a new Iron Hands list. Um, yep without kind of going, hang on, this FAQ might hit us pretty hard. Um, yeah, although, the the like, if we want to talk about Iron Hands in particular, the FAQ is not crippling. No, not, not at all. And I think a few other um, of, like, the very competitive tiered podcasts out of the US sort of pointed out that the top guys that are playing Iron Hands now, none of them are running that combination they were doing very yeah. different things with their lists and they can continue to do that. Mostly uh, with planes. Yeah, yeah, with, with with planes. I think there was one guy that, that as a joke, did run the um, the Dreadnought Nursing Home list 
and had a fair bit of success with that when they could all be ca- um, characters and they were all, you know, invulnerable to shooting kind of thing. So sad you can't do that anymore. <laughs> we could do it with one of them, right? Uh, I, I could do of... it with four if I really wanted to. Because I could take three Chaplain Dreadnoughts, which are characters by default. Oh, right. Yeah, you can. Yeah. And then one, like, Contemptor or something that I turn in. No, Contemptors have too many wounds. Um, one Box Nought. Yeah, like and an ironclad or something character. like that. Yeah, yeah. something yeah. stupid like that. Um, and then one Leviathan that I then put the <laughs> Iron Stone on and constantly just sort of go, no damage, no damage, no damage, no damage. Oh, damage! I'll heal that. I'll heal that. Yep. Yes. So, but but I mean that's the thing, right? Like, I actually I quite like the one of the other podcasts pointed this out, but with the Iron Hands Errata on the the Warhammer community page. Have you read the designer's commentary at the front of that? Uh, I did. I think I know what you're about to refer to. So, while we always strive to incorporate every yep. scrap of feedback we can into our rules, whilst working on Codex Supplement Iron Hands, we received some additional feedback after we had gone to print. We've waited before releasing this errata to see whether the feedback received bore out. It is quite evident that it has, and as a result, we felt it was important to implement that <laughs> feedback as part of this errata, <laughs> rather than wait for the next online balance change. Um, which I thought is great. Like, that, that whole idea that so some people pointed out to us that Iron Hands were OP, but we figured we'd wait and see if you guys figured that out. And clearly you have, so I guess we'll probably tone them down ever so slightly. But but like the, the thing that I think, um, like where I'm at with Iron Hands, right? If we're going to, because Iron Hands are sort of the problem children at the moment, yeah, is that they're just the new norm, right? Like, once Psychic Awakening cuts through, once we get all of that stuff, I would imagine there will be stuff that will be countered, like, counter Iron Hands quite well. Yeah, and I think we've already, I think we're already seeing that in some of the Salamanders builds. Yeah, exactly right. Like, Space Marines are uh, fighting amongst themselves pretty well at the moment, right? Like, Space Marine versus Space Marine, you can have different chapters duking it out with different builds, as long as they've all got at least one Leviathan. And they're all pretty competitive. <laughs> it's like it's like 30k zone Mortalis, right? You can be whatever legion you want, just make sure you've got a Leviathan in there. Yeah. <laughs> and some stuff around it to make it work better. Yeah, occasionally a Primark, right? And some yeah, of those wow. fucking zone Mortalis games. Um, Look, yeah, no, don't ooh. be mad just because I bring Perturabo to all my <laughs> zone Mortalis games. With all these iron circle. Uh, look, sure. I... Without a doubt, yeah, I, I think that there's an argument in there as well about um, you, like power creep between codexes, and it's kind of like the idea of you know if this is going to be the new norm for these sort of codexes, then the next stuff should hopefully be at the same level and the rest of it. I I would like to think that, but there's still a part of me that goes, I've been through too many codexes and codex releases to think that Games Workshop has enough of a handle on the idea of power creep. Yeah, fair. Um, although what's pushing back on that thought for me at the moment is actually looking at the, the Space Marine supplements, as you said. Yeah. Is that they all kind of... And, and as much as, you know, like Iron Hands has overshadowed everything, but it's like some of the builds out of the Raven Guard Codex are amazing. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see a lot of those top Space Marine players running like successor raven guard stuff yep the other thing is as well that you know now we've got like successors that 
go through and mess up traits and, and relics and everything else. And, you know, you've got combinations within combinations. We're like six months off seeing how that actually settles and plays out. Exactly. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of people are kind of missing is that, you know, Iron Hands for two weeks were, you know, somewhere in the 80% mark. Um, where are they going to settle down to? Yeah, I mean, they'll settle. Uh, even even Ultramarines, right? Like the only, the only loser I'm noticing out of the, the Space Marine sort of supplementals is White Scars. Yes. I, you see, I had kind of thought that, but you know what? I, I think that White Scars suffer a lot from... Like, they're, they're held back by hobby by the hobby side of the game, if that makes sense. Like, Iron Hands are probably the easiest Space Marine army to build and get on the table because that build was three tanks and you spray them black and you do some metal color and it's done. Whereas White Scars have got this thing where it's kind of like, you know, if you wanted to do like the old bike side of White Scars, it's pretty expensive. For starters, like it's a much more expensive army at 2,000 points than, say, the Iron Hands army that we saw floating around. Then you have to contend with painting white um, mm. and doing all of that. And I think there's actually like there is a like and, and, and honestly, it's the same thing that we kind of saw when the Orc Codex came out. And there are people that were going, don't look at the Orc stats for like six months because there are a ton of people that have Orc armies in cases. And they love they love them to death, but they're like traditional orc players that want to rip their shirts open and scream "wah" in the middle of like a game store, not yeah. beat somebody's brains out. Um, and then the when you're looking at competitive list that needs 140 boys in the list, or you need you know 12 frigging um, shotguns or whatever they were, right? Yep. And I think like somebody was saying that they priced priced out at full GW prices in the UK, and it was something like a three thousand dollar army to play yeah, like all the right. uh, all the tractor cannons or whatever they were. So there is actually like a barrier to that becoming like a meta choice, and for us to see that come yeah. through on the stats. Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, I guess even even if you're thinking about it purely theoretically, right? There's not many competitive people who are talking about white scars in a in a even a theoretical sense it's always ultramarines because they can they've got all of their sort of fallback and shoot and all the tactical aggressors right yep 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 <laughs> they counter stationary with the aggressors so you just yep. load them out and, and go nuts you've got iron hands with their unkillable leviathan which is still a legit tactic or yep. their move and shoot planes which is also great um raven guard with a character killing which is great against any army that's relying on characters to do stuff like throw the iron stone up on someone. Um, Imperial fists with their rend neg three, two damage heavy bolters that are dealing mortal wounds and killing knights basically with a heavy bolter centurion squad or your salamanders who are doing maximum flamer hits with mortal wounds on a four plus um, and just butchering everything. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, that, that is true. I, I think that White Scars, like a few of the builds that I've seen go around the place that do quite well. Um, for me, White Scars are kind of doing what Space Marines have been doing for all of eight. And that is, you can have, like, you know, multiple different, basically, slam captain builds. 
with support that goes with it and they're just like it's a different level of efficiency for it um like that's that's kind of my feeling on white scars is it's not like they're reinventing the wheel so much yeah but that that was their problem right because the the old wheel is shit which is why nobody was running pure space marines before now yeah yeah i can kind of see where you're coming from yeah um, um, just, but, just, but just, anyway, so, yeah, sorry, go. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, um, I'm just on 40kstats.com. Uh, and if yep. you haven't been there to check these stats, go and have a look at them. They're actually really interesting. Um, yes. So for all of eight, white scars are currently sitting around about 58.8% win win rate, which is really good. Mm. Um, to give you an idea, though, iron hands, and mind you, this, this is across all of eight. Iron yep. hands are about 67%. Um, and I have a feeling that if you looked previous to their supplement, they were they were in the very low fifties. Yep. Uh, if you look at where is it, Ultramarines would be the other one would be looking at. Ultramarines have a forty nine percent win rate. Yeah. 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 So, so even when so and this even takes into account like the Gillum and Gunline lists and stuff like that. So yeah, it is. Um, it is worth always, you know, checking some of these stats and being able to have the conversation that is like, well, actually, we've got, and to give you an idea, like there's 600, what is it, 688 uh, Ultramarines detachments that they have the stats on. So yeah. we're not dealing with like two or three here. We're dealing with 688 separate detachments, and that's where they're getting that 49% from. So, you know, pretty pretty good. Like that's that's, that's a decent sample size. Yes, but that's also a lot of people who are playing Ultramarines because they're the ones on the box. Um, yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, there's probably rather a lot of that than because there they've well. got yeah. an efficient list. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting to interrogate stats like that. But I guess that the the big takeaway there, though, I think, is that is that the the ultra well, the Space Marine sort of codex supplements are pretty well internally balanced, right? It, it feels like they've written one giant yeah. codex and then split it. Which is fair enough, because even the core Space Marine Codex is massive now. Um, yeah. uh, and I would imagine then that they probably won't do that with the the other... Like, I can't think of another thing that they would do that with just because Space Marines are so popular, right? Space Marines are sort of their, their bread and butter at the end of the day. So they would be the one that they would do it with. I, um, I could I could see them doing it with Chaos Space Marines. Yeah, Chaos Marines would maybe be the only other thing, but they've already kind of started doing that with Death Guard Thousand Sons, right? Yeah, no, no. So that's what I mean. Is like you, you yep. just go that next step, and you have Empress Children, and you have um, some sort of corn book, whether yeah. it's whether it's World Eaters or you know what what was the one in seventh corn corn Demonkin corn Demonkin or something like that. But it's like a specific corn book, so a specific book for each god. Yeah, um, yeah. I could see them doing that. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, but it's a, but and, and even then, right? Like, I don't feel like in six, four, four to six months, I don't feel like we're going to be having the same conversations about space marines that we are now. No, hundred percent. Even no. if even if nothing else changes, people figure out how to beat lists. Like, yeah. Uh, in in all the Gene Steeler cult pages, I've just I've been joking that the answer is always more rock saws. <laughs> but by and large the answer is more rock saws 
even against an Iron Hands list, right, or a Salamander's list, because I can get around your Overwatch, so your Overwatch doesn't bother me. All I need to do is hit you with enough Rock Saws, and you will fall over. Yeah, yeah, now, okay. It skews the maths, and I need a lot more Rock Saws now. <laughs> but at the same time, I was overkilling stuff pretty comfortably with my lists up at Battle in the Bush anyway. So, yeah. Eh. Yeah, I, I, and look, the, the thing here is is where I was trying to like note down like the big meta players in eighth, right? Yeah. And as I said, like I missed some out, but there's still one, two, three, four, five. There's probably like six or seven, which across two years is like every quarter or thereabouts. Yep. You're seeing something new emerge as like a meta beating list, mm-hmm. and sitting at the top there. Um, and actually, you know, like the, the the other big one I missed off here was I didn't put anything in here about Tau, yep. um, which is there. And, you know, and then you've got like gatekeeper lists that are there as well, which are kind of like, yep. you know, whether it's like that big orc boys list um, <laughs> that jumping across the table with 120 boys. Yep. And you've just got to be able to deal with that as well um, or whatever it is. And I think that segues very nicely into my question for this section, because I think... Mm. You know, you're much more of a competitive 40k player than I am, uh-huh. but I very much enjoy watching competitive 40k as like a sport. Um, yeah, right. And so, like, you know, I've, I've watched it as, as you know, like a kind of a tourist in that area of the hobby, and I kind of go, you know, for the first time in 25 years, I would be interested in going and playing in a competitive event. Yeah, fair. Like, it actually has me excited, and it hasn't done that in such a long time, right? Um, because of all this stuff, because there are so many choices that are possibly competitive, depending on me as a player in a lot of cases and how I put my list together. And I think that's a really healthy thing for the game. And I think it's, and, and you know what, and that's even, that's even like super healthy for two dudes in a garage playing some garage hammer. Yeah. hundred percent right? for sure. Um, it, it all flows through. Um, so I think the next section for me is it's like when you have something like this iron hands aberration that popped up, right? And even with like, you know, what I think is a pretty piss poor excuse of, well, we knew there were problems, but we were just waiting for you guys to tell us there were problems. Uh, and then we're kind of like, shit, we're going to fix it. So we now know that, that what kind of was happening behind the scenes that prompted that forward to the, um, to the FAQ for iron hands was that, um, the Iron Hand supplement dropped, went crazy for a couple of weeks in um, ITC, and the frontline gaming guys that run ITC actually came out and went, we're close to banning this list. Um, yeah. Just banning them, removing them completely. Um, and that was predicated on, let's see what the FAQ at the two-week mark was. Well, we now know that there was an FAQ that was live for about an hour, it didn't yes. fix anything yep. uh, before it was very quickly removed from the website and replaced with one that actually did change the ironstone as yes. well as the, um, I think the other big, big thing that changed between the two FAQs was multiple repairs Correct. on the one vehicle. Yep. I think was a big thing that was in there. Um, and that was like, uh, that was definitely a reaction to, you know, the biggest way of playing competitive 40k going we're at the point where iron hands is just going to become a band's codex and you cannot play it yeah exactly 
which would have had a, a you know quite a humongous impact on Games Workshop and all the rest of it. And I think the thing that kind of really gets stuck in my head though is that we know that you know Reese that runs um, Frontline Gaming with um, with Frankie and you know like they've they've been on this show. Uh, we've talked to them, you know, in the distant past about like ITC and, and how they do things, and they're great guys, and they've built an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like they're also now playtesters, and they have been for all of Eighth Edition. They've been very close to Games Workshop in terms of like developing this product and in this game because of ITC and what they're doing for the worldwide community. And it's kind of like it, it seems odd that Games Workshop slipped up and didn't listen to them. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, but what I wanted to ask in a very roundabout way is what are your thoughts on, you know, banning things or comping things for the health of the system? So, as a general rule, I hate house rules. Agreed. Uh, house rules frustrate me to no end. Um, like non-centralized banning or non-centralized comping is a house rule as far as i'm concerned either every it like either every bcp itc event bans a thing or none of them do right like yeah, it, well, it, well, it, it, well, I it's think effectively like uh doping in sports right like either no one's allowed to use steroids or everyone's allowed to use any drug <laughs> Um, yeah. And it doesn't really matter which way you go, because at the end of the day, if Iron Hands is an aberration, if it's if it's a small blip on the radar, then it'll dominate for a number of months, and then it'll settle back into a steady sort of top tier list, which it probably will. Um, if it's you know if it's been overhyped, and then Iron Hands comes out and they lose every game, then fine, the system like. <clears throat> Yeah, I, I'm pretty laissez-faire with this sort of thing because I'm aware that players will beat the unbeatable lists. It's not like people are going to be looking at the Iron Hand and going, well, I just can't beat it, so I'm going to give up. Um, yeah. Yeah. They'll, they'll figure out a workaround. And then as soon as one intrepid soul figures out a good workaround, the people who are getting frustrated playing Iron Hands will just co- against Iron Hand, sorry, will just copy-paste that, which is fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I think you're right on the money there. Um, I, I'm now thinking, you know, in regards to um, the idea of banning and comping, and this is something that uh, Rob on the Honest Wargamer was talking about, right? Because AOS is seeing a very similar thing with uh, Head Knights of Slanesh, except yeah. it's been going on now for months with no sign of it abating. And actually the last changes to Heater Knights that came out in White Dwarf actually made it worse um and one of the (laughs) and and um one of the one of the suggestions and he was like kind of like exactly like you and i they're like he's like you know like let's not ban things because telling people they can't play with the toys that they just bought at this event is like such a feels bad Mm -hmm. that like you don't want to do that you don't want to ban things you don't want to reduce things you just want to give people more options Except the way he was thinking about it is like, what happens if it was like a hostage scenario against Games Workshop? We're going to ban Iron Hands from the most popular tournament format. Oh my God, that can't happen. We'll change Iron Hands for you. Yep. And so, you know, like, I think it's a very dangerous thing, but I think to some extent the threat of banning might be quite healthy for 40k moving forwards. Well, this, because, but that's a 
thing, right? Like, it's got to be the threat of banning. It, it can't be without talking to Games Workshop first, frontline gaming out of hand bans any Iron Hand list, or just bans Iron Hands Leviathans, or just bans Triple Repulsor Executioner, whatever it is, right? They can't mm. just do that without talking oh, to Games yeah. Workshop yeah, first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There has to be a conversation in there somewhere. And at that point, if nothing happens, they can say, we've talked to Games Workshop. Here's our problem. Here's our reasoning. So from now on, at anything that's going to be recorded for Best Coast Bearings or that's going to be recorded for the ITC, um, we're just not allowing Iron Hands. Yeah, yeah. And and look, I'm pretty sure that's what they were basically saying was if they banned Iron Hands, they were going to remove it as a playable faction from anything. So, you know, even though they say, you know, like the individual TOs can do what they want, if you played Iron Hands, you wouldn't be able to record any sort of points. Yeah, there'd be no best in faction Iron Hand. Yeah, yeah. And um, you wouldn't be able to use them as a detachment and apply your points yep. to anything, I would imagine, is the way it would go. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and look, I think I'm actually far more comfortable with the idea of banning things, uh, whether it's banning stratagems, relics, units, whole armies, than I am with the idea of comping things. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I think that... At the end of the day, when you start comping, and, and I remember back in third edition, and especially all through fantasy, like this was a one mm-hmm. fantasy thing, was Australia was so well known for like this insane comp system that we had running. Um, yes. That was like a point based comp system where you had another resource laid on top of the points in your codex. And it was like you could your army could only have a hundred points or something like that. I can't remember what the amount was. And if you took this unit, not only were they worth the codex points as far as a two thousand point list went, they were worth X many comp points. Yeah. And so that would restrict the number of things that you could have in your list as well. And I always felt that that nobody outside a games workshop has the data or the experience or the money and time to build a system that's going to work properly. And even games workshop can't build a system that works fucking properly when it comes to their points. So, you know, like two TOs, like you and I sitting here trying to have a conversation late at night about, you know, how do you comp fucking, you know, um, Lehman Ross tank commanders or hellhounds or, you know, whatever it is that's causing problems, you know, Castell and Knights. So I think the idea is that, you know, a safer way to do things would just be to completely remove that block from the game and just go, nobody can have it in any way, shape or form, find something else. And then you've got like that forced evolution of like, well, this is all the stuff that this was doing in my list. I have to become better or wait for somebody else to come better and steal their list. Right. Um, Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, there's, mm. So, thinking about like, because I mean, realistically, our, our biggest problem at the moment is iron is iron hands, right? Like, or like, you know, that's the the biggest perceived problem in the yes the, the meta as it stands. But it a lot of it ultimately boils down to like a lot of the the meta problems that we've had over time have been a like a, a GW proper rule combined with a Forge World rule, right? Like less so the Castellan stuff. Yeah, like yeah. The, the Castellan soup. But a lot of it has been take a really good Forge World unit, like a, a Fire Raptor, for example, because they were king shit for a while there. Yep. Um, 
and in fact, I've heard some people talking about Iron Hands Fire Raptors recently, which has me all sorts of scared. Um, <laughs> like, I don't want to go back to banning Forge World because that was no, a, that was a dark all. time and and that sort of thing. But I think you need to rethink the Forge World keywords because the the biggest problem with the Leviathan at the moment is that it still has the Dreadnought keyword. And it's clear that the the dreadnought affecting the rules in the codexes aren't designed with the Leviathan dreadnought in mind. In mind, yeah. Um, and we've already like seen them the, do that with the um, the world well, changes, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, Yep. Um, or like the 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 storm eagle, right? Well, it doesn't have many keywords in common with anything else, but like, yeah, whirlwinds are a good example. Um, like, you just need to get rid of some of those more common bits and pieces, and I think that would fix a few of the problems. Like, so rethink the keywords for Forge World. Like, so don't make it Dreadnought, make it Relic Dreadnought as a single keyword or something. Yeah. And then only things that affect Relic Dreadnoughts would affect that particular Dreadnought. Um, yeah, and I think that's a good workaround because then all of a sudden all of the things that people are drawing in from the Forge World indexes that are really good are sort of operating functionally independently, right? Like they're they're still getting some of the chapter they're still getting all the chapter benefits and stuff, but a lot of the stratagems aren't working on them. Um, maybe even and this is potentially a bit of a this is maybe one that's not particularly good because of all the other interactions it'll impact. But get rid of the like the the vehicle keyword for them and make them relic vehicle. Yeah, yeah, that's one way to do it. Yeah, just completely but, like move them out of that stream where they're going to get affected by stuff that yeah, nobody exactly. was ever thinking about when they wrote it. And and they say that, and they also say that they're not interested in in trying to work out all the interactions. And yeah. we know that obviously they are to the point where Forge World's not really writing rules anymore. Exactly. So a lot of that stuff is literally relics, you know. Yep. Um, that they're just artifacts of a a, a different age. Yep. And maybe that's the thing, right? Maybe they all get the relic keyword and anything with the relic keyword doesn't benefit from uh, stratagems, uh, warlord traits, or relics. So it still gets all of the chapter benefits, but none of the like stratagem stuff, yep. none of the, the warlord trait affecting stuff, none of the relics affect it. I don't know, something like that. The other option that I have in mind is if you change the the way that we do detachments, and this would have to be a Games Workshop thing, right? This would have to be a step in from GW to fix it. Um, uh, and I, I know some people have talked about this in the past and I've sort of pushed back against it, but I think that we're at a point where it's it's clear that a battalion plus two not sort of core-style detachments is the way a lot of people are going. So, like, battalion, flyer, uh, flyer wing, flyer wing, or battalion, yep. spearhead, spearhead, or something like that. I think if you changed all of the auxiliary detachments, so Outrider, Spearhead, Vanguard, Flyer, Wing, Super Heavy, all those sorts of things, if you change those to zero to one total for all of them, that would okay. be an interesting yep. way to do it. So then you've either got to go for, you know, two patrols, which give you no command points, and then you can load up on all your special stuff, or a battalion where you can get a maximum of three heavy support units and you're really having to start make, starting to make some choices. Um, yeah. Or a... Am I doing that right? Yeah, Battalion and then Brigade's the top one, where you've got a lot more freedom, but realistically you're only going to have the one uh, detachment. Yeah, I think that's actually not a, not a bad workaround for it, um, especially because it's the sort of thing that could become a match-play-only rule. 
Correct. So, so that's what I'm thinking, right? That then you don't have to change any data sheets. You don't have to adjust any rules. All you've got to do is say for match play, you mm. get zero to one from this selection of detachments and you get one or more from patrol. The brigade, rest of them over here. Yeah. 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 And I, th I think that's a good way to, to probably sort that, um, that side of it out. Uh, one, one thing I, I'm just, and I'm sort of still browsing through 40 K stats, which has been, um, <laughs> oh, it, it's, it's a great website. I, I know that it's not, everything yep. um but it's you, you know the sample size is a big enough as far as i'm concerned to sort of go yeah it's yeah, worth exactly. looking at um yep. so you know just just to talk talk about the health in terms of the balance and everything else in 40k and you know most people quite balanced to health yeah yep um, and i think that's fair I, i'm on that page i think you are as well yeah so Generally, the idea would be is if you can get all your all of your armies to be somewhere around fifty percent win rate. So you win half your games, you lose half your games. Yep. Then that's kind of balanced, right? As far as the yep. maths is yep. concerned. Yep. Um, obviously, because of the sort of game it is, um, there's a lot of other things. And so I know people talk about, you know, if it's somewhere between like forty and sixty percent. It, it's pretty good, but the closer to 50-50 you can get it, the better, right? Yeah. Um, so if you're kind of like, you know, somewhere in the 30%, there's a problem with your army, and if you're somewhere above 60%, there's a problem with your army, right? They're either too powerful or too weak. Yep. Uh, if you sit within that range, you know, you, you're pretty good, although there's still winners and losers within such a large range. Okay. So I'm going to quickly run you through the win percentages for everybody. Um. So Sisters of Battle are currently sitting at 47%. Yep. They'll go Space. up with the Codex. Yep. Space Marines are 50.9%. So yep. perfect. Uh, Imperial Guard Astra Militarum are at 50.6%. So perfect. Um, Azerani. Um, so yep. Elder. Yep. 53.2%. Yep. Right. Chaos Demons are 51.8%. Chaos Space Marines are 49.49%. Yep. Mechanicus are at 51.5%. That's an interesting stat, isn't it? Yeah, but the people, like, Mechanicum has some really solid builds, and the people who are playing Mechanicus in, in competition are playing those mm. good builds. Like, yeah, it, but it's, if... it's rare to find somebody who's like, man, I really love Riser, so I'm going to do a Ryzen list. <laughs> so, um, it's always Mars with Belly Crawl and Onages and the Minus One Toughness dudes. So you reckon? So you reckon it's always Mars? Well, the I can't, highest like, the highest win percentage for Mechanica sub faction. Refine? No, well, actually, it's it's mixed, but as a single faction, it's actually um, Grier. Uh, is that the stealth one? The stealth one. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were yeah. they were hot shit for a while. For a long but time, now, and it's just waiting. now hot trash. Yeah. Um, yeah. So now it's Mars. <laughs> Yeah, but they're but they're ten percent higher than Mars. Mars is only at fifty yeah. at forty six, which is interesting. Uh, Drukari are at fifty four point three percent, so yep. quite high compared to what we've seen so far, but still below fifty five percent. Gene Stealer Cult are at fifty one point seven percent. Good old Gene Stealers. Harlequins fifty point nine percent. Yep. Imperial Knights fifty one point seven percent. Yeah, that tracks. Necrons, 48.5%. Yep. Yeah. Orcs are at 52.7%. Yep. 
Tower at 52.4%. Yep. Nids are at 46.2%. Yep. And Yanari are at 49.6%. Although there's something, I think there are the Yanari stats, there's something wrong because it looks like nobody's playing Yanari. And for a long time, there were a lot of Yanari players. So I'm wondering whether there's a stat aberration here. No, Yanari's died off completely. Oh, no, but this is looking at like all of um, all of 8th edition and they're only recording one list for Yanari overall. So I think there's a stats issue. Okay. Yep. It, it's just completely off off the page. So um, looking at that, I think is it... Is it um, yeah, so it's actually NIDs have the lowest at 46.2% win rate. Yep. Right? Uh, and the highest win rate, I think, is Drukari at 54.3%. Yeah, right. So your your percentage spread is like less than, 80, less than 8%. Yep. Now, look, there's there's a few other things. And if you go and look at these stats, it's going to be, oh, but that's, that's not only like, prime detachments it's it's also like things with but it it works as a stat to just kind of go quick health yeah, check as a general indicator are there yeah. are there outliers of course they are are stats completely you know real no and there's interpretation that goes with it which is what you and i are doing right now with them but for the most part when you're showing you've got something like 688 individual uh, ultramarines lists yeah yeah, they, these stats are, are pretty good. So as far as I'm concerned, that sort of makes me go competitive 40K is pretty fucking healthy the way it is. I yep. think as long as Games Workshop and, you know, the, the big community influencers are able to kind of deal with things like Iron Hands and stop them from running away with it. Um, and you know what? After taking yeah. the best part of 12 months to work out how the fuck to fix the Castellan issue... And now they've jumped on Iron Hands very quickly. I don't see Games Workshop making those mistakes again. No, and, like, yeah. Like, even towards the end of its life, right, when the Castellan was, like, at the point it got the nerf, people were reasonably comfortable playing against that list. Oh, 100%. The, the, bigger, the, bigger, pro- the bigger problem wasn't that it was constantly winning everything, although it was always in the top tables. The bigger problem was that it was so prevalent that sort of so many people were playing it because it was the best choice. Yeah, yeah, it was far and away the best choice. It was not, there yeah. was no option if you wanted to play, if you wanted to play some sort of imperialist, yeah. Yeah, and it was a good fire and forget, right? Like the, like that first sort of wave of Iron Hand stuff. Yeah. You could quite happily play it without having practiced and still expect to do reasonably well. There's um, nothing complex about it as a choice either, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's fine. And, you know, then they, they change knights around a bit to make it harder to do the things that that list was doing and also to bump up the points on the Castellan. And between all of that, you know, that list sort of disappeared and we wound up with other lists. Uh, yeah. And that's and, fine. And that's and, that's what will happen with Iron Hands. People will figure out a way to beat it and then the problem won't be that it's always winning. The problem will be that it's always there. <laughs> yeah, and then that could be kind of dealt with um yeah exactly and and what you'll find is that the people who were playing it because it was the best option and because it was sort of a guaranteed easy win um if they're not easily winning all the time they'll sort of default to something else yep and so you won't have the same sort of uh, occurrence frequency that you do at the moment 
like all of those red iron hens that we've seen around the place, all the yellow <laughs> ones, all the green ones, um, they'll float off and become different chapters, and that'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. And, and as you were saying before, there's always going to be people that chase that meta, and yep. Space Marines are the easiest army to chase that with. Yep, exactly right. Awesome. All right. Um, Doug, did you want to run us through some of the narrative stuff? Uh, Sure. So, for more than 10,000 years, the Emperor of Mankind has sat immobile on the Golden Throne. No, um, that's all <laughs> basic primer stuff. Um, but in the last few years, particularly with the, the sort of the end of 7th, the start of 8th, we've had the Rise of the Primarch series. So that was the, oh, sorry, the, the Gathering Storm stuff, which is where Cadia falls. So Cadia is, is now a, a barren rock with half a Blackstone Fortress sticking out of it. Um, the survivors flee to Ultramar, where Belisarius Call and Eve Rain effectively resurrect Gulliman and put him in a life support suit. Um, uh, and then sort of the, the rest of that campaign was Gulliman going from Ultramar to Terra uh, and having to fight stuff along the way. But that, you know, seems to have resolved itself pretty well. He makes it to Terra. In fact, actually, that's a lie. He makes it to the moon, um, where apparently there's a warp gate that nobody knew about, um, <laughs> where he fights Magnus, um, and then the Sisters of Silence come in and bail him out. And so he goes and has a chat to the Emperor. Uh, and so then, uh, after that crusade, um, he the, the, re the returned Primarch, the, the returned sort of icon of Imperial superiority and power, um, steps out into the into the galaxy and begins the Indomitus Crusade. Um, although, before all of that, and as part of all of that, particularly with the fall of Cadia, we end up with the Cicatrix Maledictum, which is the, the warp storm that sort of splits from the Eye of Terror out through, basically, Fenris, which is where the, the Wrath of Magnus stuff was happening, um, down towards Ultramar, um, and then sort of splits the entire galaxy in half. And so the Indominus Crusade is a bit of a reaction to that because Gulliman wants to go out and basically walk the walls of the Imperium, right? See what the state of things is after the the eruption of the... Um, what's the layman's term for the Cicatrix Maledictum? Great Rift. The Great Rift, um, yeah. Yes, so he wants to see, particularly on the Imperial side, what's going on, but also send help to the other side, the Imperium Nihilus, if he can. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, one of, one of the interesting things I've, I found when I was sort of, um, once again, doing a bit of research and, and whatnot um, was when they get to the other side of the rift um, and specifically um, to, to Baal and the Blood yes. Angels and they're kind of like dealing with a, a bug infestation that nearly wipes them out and all sorts of things. Um, one thing I completely missed, and I imagine it must be in one of the Black Library books that I just haven't got to yet, Um uh, <laughs> Gilliman actually, so um, Baal was originally this this amazing paradise planet that was then mm -hmm. like destroyed by some sort of like you know doomsday weapon or something. Basically, they nuked it into oblivion and turned it into a plastered wasteland. Um, Gilliman, for some reason, decides that Baal needs to be returned to being a um, a paradise world, and they actually terra re terraform it. Nice. 
which I had completely missed in everything. And I'm like, I'm not a big Blood Angels guy and I'm reading all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I know he basically says, look, Dante, I can trust you. So, you know, the, the shitty part of the Imperium on this side, you, you go girl, you deal with this stuff. Yep. Um, um, and it's like, this is what a footnote that he's like, and he declares that, you know, uh, I think it's Baal Secundus needs to be, you know, terraformed back to its original beauty. And I'm like, hang on, is that the, oh yeah, that's the fucking paradise world. Right. Okay. So <laughs> we'll remodel the house while we're here. Great. <laughs> Interesting. There you go. Um, Yes, so that's where we're up to. So, so some things have happened. So we've gone from, you know, the Cadian Gate being the last line of defense against Chaos to it falling and Chaos sort of going everywhere, um, touching all corners of the galaxy, including dear old uh, Gudrun. Yeah. Oh, Gundren, sorry. Um, which now sort of sits right in the path of the, the Great Rift, um, which features in Codex Imperial Knights, just quietly. Um, there's a knight sort of manning the manning the walls on on Gundren. Oh uh, yeah 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 yeah. I remember reading about that. Yeah, which is which yeah. is kind of cool. I, I think there's um, you, you know, it cannot be you know overstated how completely fucked up everything is on on the nihilist side of the Imperium. Yes, um, things are not going well. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely you know almost back to like Age of Strife kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, completely cut off. There's no Astronomicon. There's no, you know, like there's no help coming. Like even the Indominus Crusade that sort of appeared and happened for like a hundred and something years. Um, there's still just like it, it's just super messed up. Uh, and I really want to get my hands on a copy of the. Um, I say it's Dembski Bowden that wrote Emperor's Spears. Or Spears oh, I have Emperor, that. Oh, I have that. I am about a quarter of the way in. Oh, okay. Because apparently it's it's the best primer on like what it's like on that side of the rift. It seems unpleasant. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it seems all sorts of kind of messed up. Um, more grim yes. dark than grim dark. <laughs> yeah, I, and like you say, right? Like because the the whole point of the the Cicatrix Maledictum or, or part of the effect of it is that everybody on the the dark Imperium side, the Imperium Nihilist side no longer has access to the Astronomicon or has only the vaguest hint of it. Um, yeah. And so now you've got problems trying to navigate on that side of the Imperium because the Astronomicon is the way that humanity has always navigated, um, you know, since the founding of, of the Imperium of Man. And so now that you can't do it that way, well, what the hell are you meant to do? Um, you know, are you back to short hops and, and desperate sort of recalculations or are you you know just gonna risk it yeah uh, and go fuck. for the long run are you gonna event horizon that thing i was uh, just gonna say fuck it turn the geller fields on and just like fold that space man yeah pretty much <laughs> like where you're going you won't need eyes it's fine um <laughs> well the spice expands yeah. consciousness so that's okay it does it's true um but as a result of the 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 great rift splitting the galaxy there are only a few viable sort of passages through it um and one of the most stable ones is the nachmund gauntlet uh which vigilus sits on yes uh, which is why vigilus was such an important planet and a, a good place to set that sort of campaign um so vigilus is a mm, i want to say a hive world which is supported by um what was the name of the, the moon that was orbiting it? 
some forge moon anyway um and so the whole idea there is that you know the imperium rushes to reinforce it because of course it's one of the the only planets that's sort of guarding a stable route through the the great rift um but oh no there are orcs there've always been orcs orcs are a, a bit of a nuisance but they seem to be showing up in in greater numbers um, and so the Mechanicus and the, the Astra Militarum forces that are there already are, are fighting that off. Uh, but then, oh no, Eldar start showing up. Uh, and the Dark Eldar are just stealing people. And the Eldar seem to be making surgical strikes, trying to avert some great calamity. Um, but then, oh no, there are gene stealers as well. <laughs> uh, with no less than two patriarchs on Vigilus. Uh, and their various attendant uh, cultists. And somebody's got a set of steak knives, right? Yeah, you would think, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the Space Marines are deployed to, to help them out. Extra Astra Militarum regiments are brought in. Um, but then uh, plague ships start showing up, including the Gellapox Infected from the Rogue Trader kill team box. Um, and they start spreading plague and disease through the hives. And so the Iron Hands just put lock that shit down and start burning the hives out. Um, but then, oh no, Harkin Worldclaimer shows up and claims the world for Abaddon the Despoiler, um, who, oh no, then shows up uh, in Vigilus 2, <laughs> Electric Boogaloo, <laughs> um, where he is uh, heroically fought off by Marnius Kalgar. Uh, so Vigilus eh, more or less remains in Imperial hands. <laughs> yeah, I, I... certainly a lot of its value is gone now. Yeah, yeah, and, and and I think that's what I think that's one of the, the things with the fluff um, that's really cool is it's kind of like we didn't have the Indominus Crusade, like we didn't play the Indominus Crusade. We don't have a campaign book for it or anything like that. You can obviously just go, oh, cool, we use um, gray shields or whatever they got called. Um, yep. You know the unaligned Primaris guys and Bobby G running around, and you can kind of play some of that. But they went, we want to move this storyline forwards what we're going to do is do the intro to it for a hundred years, hundred and something years, and then we'll drop you into it. So we'll give you a fair bit of change really quickly. Uh, And I think what we're going to see now is really micro stuff like Vigilus, where it's like one planet. And then we're now seeing Psychic Awakening, which is length and breadth of the galaxy. Yep. With zoom-ins in different bits. Um, whether it's like personality based or whether it's going to be like geographic based, I'm not too sure. Um, obviously we've seen one that's a personality based one around Jane Zar. Um, yep. and that sort of thing, the next one's happening, you know, on the other side of the galaxy from the first bit. So I think yep. that'll be, um, that'll be really cool to sort of see how that all sort of plays out. But Games Workshop is able to throttle the narrative up and down as they want to. Uh, whereas yeah, they've definitely. never done that in the past. They jumped backwards and forwards, but it was always very self-contained. Um, this is now let's progress stuff, and then it's just how quickly are we going to progress stuff? Yep. Yeah, very much so. Um, so I'm keen to see particularly where the rest of... Because I haven't bought Psychic Awakening at all, so I honestly can't say much about exactly what's going on, except that um, Drazar doesn't really like the Yanari. 
Yeah, so so there, there, there seems to be this, um, there's been this ongoing thing with the Yanari and they're basically a death cult, right? Yep. Um, and they've been for, for quite a while now trying to reawaken or put back together uh, an elder god that they thought was destroyed. Yep. Um, and the idea is if they can bring this guy back to life, um, he can consume all the souls of the entire elder race, and then that will give him enough power to go and like beat Slanesh up and kill Slanesh. And that's kind yeah. of going to be the end game. Is that's how they're going to save the galaxy from chaos? Is by wiping themselves out as a race. Um, however, you, as you can imagine, there's some people that possibly don't want to give themselves up to that. Um, yep. But one of the really interesting things, and I think I spoke about this a couple of episodes ago, there was a short story that they did uh, for Psychic Awakening, because they've been doing a few of them once every couple of weeks. You'll get a short story that has something to do with it. And one of the really interesting things is it was a uh, like a far – it wasn't a fast, it was like a warlock. Uh, on one of these craft worlds and the whole the, the short story was about the walk being drawn to another path yep. and instead of it being something that takes years and years and years it was basically over the course of an afternoon and then it got accelerated yeah. to the point where the craft world gets attacked towards the end of the story and they basically go crazy and decide to in a split second fall onto the pathway of like the warrior and then two seconds after that they're dead right <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah so it's kind of um i, I think there's going to be like a whole lot of stuff coming through to do with like the fall of the elder again and i'm actually thinking that we're going to see very quickly that craft world elder is not going to exist in any way shape or form that we know it up to now well, there was a fun. There's a fun bit in Psychic Awakening with Yandon. Have you read that bit? No, I haven't read that bit. So, Yandon, of course, have had a long-term problem with uh, staying alive for any extended period of time, um, and most of their forces are dead dudes. Uh, but the whole wraith thing, like, despite the fact that every Eldar army on the table seems to have 100 wraith constructs, well, not all of them, that's not true, but almost none, in fact, but um, uh, wraith constructs are, are so common, and yet they're they're quite a shitty existence for an Eldar, right? They're, they're faded out and um, distant, and it's all sort of very mechanical and, and shitty. Um, so Yandon have now gone, hang on, uh, the Yanari have a way to preserve souls and to, to put souls in living bodies, right? Like, that's part of their whole shtick. Yep. And the Homunculus Covens have a way to grow bodies. Oh, really? Clone Delta? That could be fun. Uh, and graft souls to those bodies, albeit imperfectly. So what if we started ripping the souls out of our Wraith Constructs and started putting them in cloned Eldar bodies? Ooh. No, so I that might be fun. That. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. That seems like a, a fun sort of spin on Yandon. Um, yeah, which would be cool. And um, uh, did you read the bit about um, what's his face? Fucking Vect. So Vect was assassinated, uh, like properly assassinated, at one point. 
in ooh, was that in the lead up to Psychic Awakening? Uh, I thought it was. I thought that was in the lead up to eight that that happened, didn't it? Mm, possibly. Yes, yeah, I feel so like now that he's was, the that was now he's the living muse. Ago. Yeah. Yeah. No, it can't have been because he was he was around when. Actually, no, it must ooh, maybe. Maybe. But anyway, <laughs> that was interesting to have uh, Vect, like, born again of blood, kind of in the same way that the Incarn is. Despite having all of his little clone sort of labs blown up. Yeah, I, I think the other thing that's really interesting, and I've seen this throughout, like, all of 8th compared to, like, previous to it, is 8th is letting Games Workshop pick and choose what they see as being important to like the main storyline. Yeah. And I think they've, I think they've obviously made a decision going into eight going, we need to reground this as Imperium versus chaos. And then other stuff gets layered on top of it. Right. Um, And I think like, like I, 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 well, no, I don't think I, I definitely know that at one point there was an idea that it was, kind of going to end up being Imperium versus or everybody versus Nids. And yeah. that was going to kind of be what was going to end up, you know, if they ever moved anything forwards. Um, and then there yep. were things like, well, okay, maybe there's this, there's a big enough thread with like Tau or something in there to do it. Um, whereas with 8, I think they've just kind of gone, look, it needs to be the Imperium versus Chaos. Yep. And then everything else is just laid on top. Yes, there are orcs. Yes, there's there's elder and they're scheming and they're doing all these different things. But I think at the end of the day, it's really going to be what we're going to see is a lot of flavor from those different bits. But the main guts of everything is always going to be driven by humanity. Yes. Um. Yeah. Which and and look, I I like that. I think that's the best way to do it if you're going to move it forwards because it's the strongest way to do it. There's the most armies and, and and everything else to go with it it's the most fleshed out uh part of the war is kind of the imperium and and how it sort of like just mirrors off with chaos yeah yep exactly so i feel like for, they've done they've done a really good job so far with that um while also doing a really good job of adding everything on top of it and going well okay if you're an elder player and you want to know what's happening with them here you go here's the Inari, here's this that and the rest of it um and now psychic and i think psychic awakening a lot of that is going to be so like war based yes um, one would think yeah yeah that that's that's really the way they kind of look at it like the rules are secondary it's like models and war first so yeah um, i think that's a very positive way to do it i um, so is it... i've been distracted for the last couple of seconds by uh the battle of Sal- of saladin which is x a double l a d i n um which someone has just pointed out on Facebook to me, uh, which is where the Iron Hands, Imperial Fists, and Raven Guard all fight together against a bunch of orcs. Uh, and I'm highly amused by the story. So it's worth reading the narrative in your books. So this one, the Iron Hands get word that something called the Brimstone Heart, one of their old relics, um, has been located on the planet. Uh, but when they get there, they find that the Imperial Fists have turned it into a shield generator. <laughs> so they've used it to power void shields um and so the iron hands are like look let us take it and we'll both leave because these orcs are going to overwhelm us and the fists are like retreat i think not and so they sit there 
Um, and so, so it's Feyros and Torgaradon, the two new Primaris dudes. So they almost end up in a punch-up over it. But then the <laughs> shield generator, if you read the Iron Hands and the Imperial Fists book, detonates. So it explodes. Um, and then both of them have to basically make the choice to pull back to a more advantageous position and fight off the orcs. Um, but when you read the Raven Guard one, Shrike detonates it. <laughs> because he's like, these two dudes are fighting and we're all going to die unless something happens. So he blows up the Brimstone Heart. And then, you know, the fists and the, the Iron Hands pull back. And then, surprise, there's Raven Guard at the fortified position as well. <laughs> and they all fight off the orcs. Which we're I think is friends. great. It's, it's cute to see that sort of carryover across two or three sort of different codexes. <laughs> that's awesome um, so 100% read the read the fluff bits <laughs> they are good yeah um, yeah I, I get like they've been doing a really good job of that and I think once upon a time it would have just been like a little cutout box yep um or that sort of thing because it kind of just had to fit this giant swirling established cannon yes and it wasn't really allowed to do anything to tick that clock you know closer to midnight and now we're yep. at like one thirty, sort of thing. Um, yeah, everything's exactly gone right. to shit. So, yeah. So, so Doug, I guess moving forwards, what do you think they're going to do narrative wise? Like, where do you think we're going with this? Do you think they're going to like really slow it up soon and get us back to where we were at the end of seventh, where it's kind of like, okay, we're done moving stuff forward. We've moved forward enough. Now let's just play in this sand pit. I don't necessarily see how they. Well, actually, I guess they probably could, but I don't necessarily see how they could with the sort of release schedule that they're sticking to between Vigilus and Psychic Awakening and no doubt whatever comes next. Um, I would imagine that we'll sort of keep rolling forwards a little bit or at least feel like we're moving forwards. So, like, one of the things that obviously was sort of, def like, defining for 40K for years was that it not only were we not going anywhere, it felt like we weren't going anywhere. So it always felt like we were in, no matter what you did, we always wound up at the same point. Cadia still yeah. stood. Chaos was at the door. <laughs> the Tyranids are eating everything. The Orcs are, you know, shooting off flares and flipping cards. Um, now it feels like we've got a lot more space to do, well, Vigilus is under attack. And, you know, it sort of becomes, particularly for the Vigilus campaign, almost like a new Cadia, right? Where, you know, you've got to hold off Chaos or else half the Imperium is plunged into darkness. Um, and then Psychic Awakening, you've got things happening all over the galaxy which don't necessarily tick the clock forwards, but it feels like we're still going somewhere with, you know, the Eldar or with the Black Templars or with, you know, the Tau or whatever. Um, and then, no doubt, we'll get some, some campaign books over in Imperium Nihilus, which will be cool as well. Because you can do whatever you want over there. That's basically the Wild West now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It, so, it becomes right. a great a great sandbox for hmm, let's try this out and see what happens. What's the reaction gonna be? And yeah, you know. <laughs> so I can't imagine that we'll go go back to like feeling like nothing's moving. It may be true that's not that nothing's moving, but I feel like there'll still be that sort of sense of movement yeah. somewhere in there. Like it'll feel more like the Abaddon's Black Crusades, right? Where it's sort of he's always incrementally doing something. Something, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather yeah, yeah. than it being like bit, the, yeah. um, uh, you know, maybe the Eye of Medusa campaign, right? Which or the Medusa Five campaign, which was great, but ultimately irrelevant. 
Yeah, that's that, that's probably a good way to put Medusa five actually. <sighs> yeah, look, I, I'm I'm on the same page as you as I think that at some point they're going to have to slow down. Yep. Um, and and find ways to kind of play within what they've been building for the last couple of years. Um, yeah. And, and and look, I think Psychic Awakening is going to be, what, 12 months of stuff, probably? I would be surprised if it goes, yeah, if it goes any faster than that, because you're right, it's predicated on the release schedule for their stuff. So, um, yeah, it's a bit hard to sort of do that. Like, I always thought, and, and you know, when I was, because I've been playing this game now for, you know, 20-something years and, and, you know, getting involved in the fluff of it for as long that was always the big draw card for me was the war yeah. and i always thought like whenever i saw like a thread back in the day on like portent or like dacker or something like that about oh you know if they were going to move the story what would they do and i was always one of those people that was like i really hope they don't yep like i was never really crying out going i want them to move it so because i was, I was like there's so much that hasn't been you know, in any way, shape or form dealt with. And there's all these yeah. little hints and I'm kind of like, I just want to like flesh this out. I want to know who Cypher is and I want to know this and I want to know that. So there's so much stuff to do. Why do we need to move it? Yeah. Um, but after two years of this, I am so happy. Like That's it's it. actually like, because all that other stuff still exists. And if you want to play exactly. in that sandbox, you can you can go back and redo armageddon which is kind of like where i'm kind of at at the moment um or if you want to redo medusa 5 for some reason you can go back and do that and all of that stuff's still there and Mm -hmm. i think the other real like absolute stroke of genius um and i think this was black library more than anything else helping games workshop proper out is the writer's I think there were a lot of things in terms of the Indominus Crusade and that big jump where they took control of what they wanted to take control of, even down to, like, that really confusing thing about, like, um, dates and times and the Order of Kronos. And and, and, and it was kind of like, hang on, why is this happening? Like, what's the point (laughs) of this existing? It's not just, like, a funny thing. It had to do with them, to some extent, wiping the slate clean the way yes. they wanted to do it without retconning things. I think yep. they, they they really, really managed to slip themselves through a very small gap where they didn't need to retcon stuff, but they could move things forward and still leave everything alone that they had already built. Um, and yep. obviously, like, they're still playing in that as well. Like, think about, you know, Dan Abnett and, like, the fiction that he writes. Mm-hmm. He, he's not writing that stuff in, in 8th edition. So, you know, it's really cool to see that they've managed to do that. Um, and as much as, you know, whether you like Primera Space Frames or not, and there's a few other little things in there, it works really well as a device. Yep. So, yeah, no, on the, on the yep, whole, yep, I'm, yep. I'm, pretty, I'm pretty happy with the narrative and, and everything else. And I think, yeah, uh, Psychic Awakening is going to be an interesting over the next, I, I reckon it's going to be 12 months. I reckon we're a month or two months into it. So I reckon we've got the best part of a year left. Yeah. Like, cause it's what it's, uh, yeah, that feels about right. A year or so I would imagine. Cause that would be like 12 books, 12, 13 books. 
yeah, would imagine and... they'd release them more frequently than once a once a month. Yeah, and, and and I think the other thing is once again release schedules, right? Yeah, that would kind of to some extent make sense. Yep. Yeah. For sure. Awesome. Well, I think that that leads us to to the final question of our main segment here, mm. um, which is probably you know um, so far two years in the eighth edition. Mm-hmm. Talked about as much as we possibly can thumbs up thumbs down what what are we thinking uh i give it a solid four stars out of five stars or is it some sort of weird like seven and a half star rating system you've designed no, four out of five i think it's <laughs> it's been doing really well there have been a couple of hiccups along the way but i think uh, you know the the narrative has had a sort of a drive to it which has been really good to see um, and like you said, it's not like it's it's invalidating any of the old stuff. So if you want to go back and redo Bad Up Wars, if you want to go back and sort of play around in the Sabbath World's Crusade, like, go for broke. <laughs> but it's just giving you more sand pits to play in, right? Like, it's you can you can move more forward options. 200 years yeah. and, and do some Imperium Nihilist stuff. You can do some, you know, uh, Primaris Marine stuff. Um, so I think that's really good. The the gaming side of it, I think, is, you know, better than it has been for quite some time, um, particularly when you think about the, the darkest days of 7th edition. Um, <laughs> we're certainly not there anymore. Uh, and other than one or two sort of... I don't even necessarily want to say missteps. One or two things which have set the internet on fire. Um, you know, they, they've done pretty well overall. Nothing's yeah. been nothing's been unstoppable for long. Yeah, which has been really good. Yeah, I, I I think I'm probably much closer to giving it like five out of five stars, to be honest. Um, yeah. And I think a lot for me is this is without a doubt the best edition of of 40k that exists, and I think that that's yeah, definitely. That's a that's an objective statement. I think there is enough information that you can make an objective case built on statistics that says this is the best. I think you can look at their sales figures. I think you can look at the the um, the win percentages and all that that we were talking about previously and mm-hmm. do it. Um, I think you can probably even look to things like um, book sales and book downloads with Black Library to say, you know, people are interested in this narrative and they're consuming it more than they were in previous editions. Um, and I think, and then you can, you know, obviously take anecdotal evidence from, you know, all over the internet and your gaming groups. And, you know, while there are definitely people that are kind of like, oh, no, I don't like 8th edition for this. Or, you know, I really just can't get over the idea of Primaris Space Marines and Belisarius Call. And there's not a problem with that. And you're not wrong, right? It, it is a personal thing. But I think, they would be very much drowned out by the, you know, tens of thousands of people that are going, I'm back into 40K after being gone for so long. Um, yep. Like I jumped on Daka Daka for the first time in a million years and I was sending you guys some messages this morning going, oh my God, Daka Daka is still, like, still exists. And then it was like, holy shit, Daka Daka is still super current. Oh my God, what the fuck is going on? It's a, you know, it's 2019 and there is an internet forum that is still like super current. Like all the all of the articles on this page were from the last two to three days. Um, 
and even things like that just make you go, yeah, no, nah, more than ever they are on that right track. And yeah, there's a few little things here and there um, that could be done better, but they seem to be learning. And you know, yeah, I think it's been the best time for this hobby I've ever seen in my entire life. Yep, for sure. So yeah, I think I'm much more at that um, that five stars. So definitely, people, uh, let us know what you guys think. Send us uh, some messages on social media and the rest of that sort of stuff on it. Um, and we'll definitely share some on the next episode uh, in the front bit, which would be pretty cool. Uh, so what we might do is a quick break and then uh, jump back with a hobby hack quickly before we close the show out. Sounds good. See you soon. And we're back. Uh, so our hobby hack for this evening is, uh, despite the fact that we spent all of our time talking about 40k, not specifically 40k related, it's more for Aeronautica Imperialis. Uh, so I've been really enjoying painting my little planes, and there's lots of different ways to make them uh, better, cooler, like lots of people are doing things with oils and, and contrasts and what have you. Um, but I want to talk about doing the canopies on your Aeronautica planes. Um, so some people are happy to just paint them sort of white and leave them as is. Um, some people want to paint them like a, 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 a green color to, to make it look like thick military glass, that sort of stuff. Um, I've actually had quite a bit of success painting them primarily. So Althwan gray as a, as a base. So once you painted the rest of the plane, come back, do the canopy in Althwan gray. So that's basically white. Um, give that two coats probably. And then hit all of the panels with Griff Charger Grey, which is the contrast colour, so it's like a light blue-grey. Um, let that dry. Hit them again with Griff Charger Grey. So that gives it just a little bit more of that blue tint. Um, and it sits quite nicely around the like the struts on the, on the canopies. Um, yep. And so once that dries, you get quite a nice sort of... like So it looks quite pale in the middle, and then it thickens out the, the further you get to the, the struts, which looks really good. And then to simulate the grass, the grass to simulate the glass <laughs> effect, um, I just go back in with a, a fine detail brush and some Ultwin Grey, and paint two parallel lines on each panel, all going in the same sort of direction, uh, to simulate a little bit of like uh, light reflection. Re- reflection or something like that. Yeah, yeah. That, that that's actually really really cool. Um, and one of the really things, good. one of the things I've actually been racking my 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 uh, very small brain about is how I'm going to do all the cockpit glass on those Thunderbolts that you sold me. Um, mm, yes. Because I think one of them you didn't have at, you didn't have the cockpit for, so you did, so you've actually covered up the glass. Uh, uh, yeah. Yep. And then yeah, the yeah. and then the other one, the cockpit's actually open. Yes. Um. So I've got. To, I'll probably end up just yeah doing the same thing, getting some. Um, some sort of like plastic and just putting it in and then like painting it or something like that. And I was considering tinting it, um, which is where you get like the uh, Tamiya clear colors um, yeah. and you can tint like see-through glass and it looks like, you know, uh, you're getting like glow from inside or something like that. But uh, I might give, uh, I might give that a bit of a go. 
what yep. you what you just suggested with the uh, the grift charger and, and just doing like the reflection lines on it and that sort of thing. Yep. I think that would suit quite well. Um, and I don't have to go through trying to find like cockpit bits and the rest of it. Save yes. some time. No, that's fair. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think that'll do us for this episode. Um, as normal, uh, you can find us at The Loaded Dice across Facebook and Instagram. If you want to uh, send us your thoughts uh, outside of social media, you can always email us at theloaderdicecast at gmail.com. Uh, and actually, one thing I'm going to add to this is uh, if you feel like leaving us an iTunes review, please do. Uh, five stars is highly recommended. Nice. Uh, well, then, until next time, keep your powder dry and your dice loaded.